clubhouse. What if the true test of family isn't loyalty, but sacrifice? If I join you, if I become part of your family, my fear, the sacrifices I would have to make. No one's putting a gun to your head. Sometimes there's a gun to your head and you don't even know it. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing part 19, the penultimate episode of Your Honor. <laughs> Tonight's episode was written by Marcus Dalzine and was directed by Rosemary Rodriguez. Marcus is a co-executive producer on the show starting in season two, but this is their first writing credit for the show. They've written a lot of other things. Uh, this is Rosemary's first time directing on Your Honor. New blood at the wheel for this second to last episode. Interesting choice, right? To have like so much consistency and then bring in someone new for these two. Uh, well, that's pretty wow, huh? Yeah, usually you get the last two episodes. Usually it's the showrunner or a creator or a longtime director usually comes in and does the final two episodes. So it's an interesting choice. But, you know, I appreciate it. The show has been very gracious with passing the load around to lots of different voices, uh, but as far as directors and as far as writers go. So, you know, I, that's a philosophy that a lot of shows don't do so i especially appreciate getting new voices and i really like this episode i'm going to take the approach of these were two good people to bring in for this episode just a community note please join us on facebook in the showtime your honor tv series fan group to discuss all things your honor with so many other fans mike i think it took to the penultimate episode of season two for me to be able to say all of that in one breath but i did it you're I doing, did it. You're doing great. Maybe we get that surprise <laughs> season three. You know, you never know. Oh my gosh. You never know. You never know. Yeah, Joey yeah. Hearthstone, I've, I know you're listening. He's the I've knocked it down to, to less than a pack a day. So now I can, I can really, I can really, really use those lungs. And that's pack of glue that you're huffing. <laughs> Of course, yes. Yes. Uh, just a reminder, we assume you have watched this episode. We are going to be spoiling things, but we are not going to be doing is doing a step-by-step -step recap of the episode. So if you haven't watched yet and you don't want to be spoiled or you have no idea what's happening, pause, go watch episode part 19 and come back and listen to us. And we'll really appreciate it. We'll wait for you. We'll just sit here and sing the Jeopardy theme to ourselves. <laughs> we'll practice our deep breathing. <gasps> <sighs> Mike, I know you adore a penultimate episode. I know you do. I know they mean everything to you. This was a very dense episode. I know that this was one that I felt like it did feel different than the rest. Like you could tell we had a different writer and a different director because it had a sense of urgency and it just had like a lot. It felt like a lot was going on. Like it just it felt like you needed to pay attention to everything because they were going to wrap stuff up. They were going to make some big moves. 
100% agree. This show is moving towards a conclusion. It realizes it has a ton of things to wrap up, even with as dense as this episode was. And it really was chock full. My notes were my tiny little psychotic you know, serial killer sprawl <laughs> that I have was like block, like wall to wall, five pages, solid little tiny print notes. And it, it was dense. It was super dense. And they only have an hour left. So there is definitely a sense of urgency. That's a great way to phrase it. They know they have a lot still, even now, even with what they accomplish in this episode, they still have a lot to go. I really like this episode. I do love a penultimate episode. That is usually where you get the final table setting, the final pieces, the final chess pieces being moved into their positions for with whatever the wrap up and resolution is going to be, especially when you're looking down the barrel of a series finale, which as far as we know, this is what we're getting in a week. It had to accomplish a lot, and I think it went a long way of doing it. Let's talk about episode themes. There are a couple episode themes. One, The one central theme I think everything kind of spun off from was this idea of consequences for our actions. I think the whole series is really about the consequences of our actions and the consequences of the actions of others on our lives, but I really felt it in this episode. I think when you combine that with Lee's opening statement of trust no one, and Michael makes a very kind of pointed statement to Jimmy out at the groundbreaking ceremony prep for Baxter District when he says he's tired of and doesn't want to be the judge of right and wrong anymore. I feel like all of that you throw in a blender and is really the episode theme, but I think gets to the larger feeling of the show. Let's not judge people for their right and wrongs, or let's let's do so sparingly. Let's take responsibility for our actions and realize that our actions have consequences and beware of who you put your trust in because you never know when you're being played. There was something that hit me really hard about this concept of about getting to the point where you no longer even want to be the judge of right and wrong. Like not only do you recognize I can't be the judge or I'm not even sure what right and wrong is anymore, but you get to the to the stage of of wanting to step away from even mildly judging other people's choices. I find myself, the older I get, being like, they must have their reasons, thinks there must be something that we're not aware of because, you know, they chose X, Y, Z, and I and maybe I know that person, or maybe I just say, boy, that's not what I would have picked. But I'm so less likely to just jump to, well, that person's doing it wrong. Like it's like a non it's like a non-starter for me anymore because everybody has their reasons, right? And you just have no idea what's going on in their lives about their their previous experience and what's going on with them. But also just like what is happening right now. Likely you do not even know a fraction of all the factors right then. So I, I think it's a big deal. Do you think it's a maturity thing to come to some sort of like not only is there not black and white, but I don't even want to be near the judging table for, for what is okay. I think it's maturity. I think it's more about becoming self-aware. You have to have a Jesus-like life to still be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and even older, looking at others and judging what they do. Like, motherfucker, take a look at what you've done. Do you really want someone sitting there judging you for your actions? I know I don't. I just turned 45. I don't want anyone fucking judging me for my actions. <laughs> I've done fucked up a bunch in my life. So I'm not about being out here judging what other people are doing because I certainly don't want them looking back at me and, and turning that back on me. I'm, I'm dealing with my own ju judging myself and, and judging myself for the consequences of actions. 
is that the big switch maybe when it comes to getting older is that first of all you meet other people right and so as you meet more people throughout diverse your life people yeah. more diverse people you start to realize that people live their lives in different ways and all of a sudden in that realization that for the most part most of what we think are quote-unquote the rules are really just man-made and very cultural based right like it depends on where you grew up and what part of the world and all the things that go into your what your quote traditions are and those types of things that all of a sudden right and wrong is extremely subjective and you know there's no way that you can put yourself in other people's shoes that kind of stuff almost becomes laughable because it's like it's impossible to figure out what you would do in their position and not only that but it's it's that shouldn't be the goal anymore like i said like the next step from that realization is not even wanting or even acting like you could you could guess what other people's lives look like uh, that's 100 percent correct i mean we're going to delve more into this when we get into jimmy and michael but i think it has a lot to do i know you said you want to start with desire and, and i think it has a lot to do with big mo and little mo yeah. if you really get to that like you just most people probably did not consider every factor that was going into the decisions that were being made by those two that's where the surprise elements i think came in to the to this you know storyline Let's start with Desire, because you can really tell their story in three short clips, and it, it really sets the table. And if you're listening to the words, what is a huge twist towards the end of the episode is probably not much of a twist at all. I think actually Little Mo reveals his cards and reveals his true deep down sense of loyalty pretty early on. Let's listen to the first interaction we have of note between Chris when Chris and his boys roll up on Little Mo on the street. Chill. Just want to talk to you. About what? Could it talk? Queen slipping. You were a top advisor. Loyal to the fucking end. Where'd it get you? It didn't get me killed. So that's something. That's a low fucking bar. This little insurrection you got, if it don't work, then you'll all be on the ground. <laughs> Big Mo's time is up. But we got something special for you. In a row, doesn't matter. Desire for life. Look at us. We are desire. One, you have to note that little Mo, outcast, wandering the streets, still knows about the coup attempt, which says something about little Mo and his resources that he's still clued in on what is happening in Bufa's, in the neighborhood, and from which he was excommunicated. I think that's an interesting little note, just to keep tabs on what Little Mo knows and what Little Mo doesn't know. He is definitely one of the still most clued in people on the show. I, I feel like Chris maybe was, was thinking he was going to surprise him with some information and this job offer. And Little Mo comes back with, I know about your little coup, but hey, I'm not super into going and killing my aunt we're blood i'm desire plus i'm still alive she could have easily killed me that counts for something i don't know that that was the reaction chris was probably re expecting from little mo you're right I, th I think that you know for little mo he bleeds you know desire in his blood if you will and there's something about him being able to like you said keep tabs from afar i i wonder all the small details of things that he saw maybe 
maybe maybe corners that were empty where someone should have been on a lookout or, you know, like windows being open that should have been shut or something like little things around that he's picked up on all the small clues that would tell you that things aren't running like they normally should be. Like, I get what you were saying, like, maybe he still has some people on the inside who would be like talking to him or feeding him info or something. But I'm even suggesting that maybe just existing in the world that desire, you know, normally runs for him, he can sense things are different because things that should be happening, he can see are not happening. Well, we talked about it uh, last week and the week before. The second Little Mo was gone, security in and around Bufas fell to shit. You had mm-hmm. you had Carlo and Junkie... Uh, Joey. Joey rolling up on the place without getting caught. You had Joey taking pictures through the, bl- through the open blinds <laughs> of Bufas while they're cutting drugs and Eugene is walking around. Like, immediately, as soon as soon... Instantly, as soon as Little Mo was gone, the security went to hell because Big Mo is checked out. She is not focused on on Bufas. Little Mo was. And there is a there's a vacuum there in the structure and the way security runs, the way the gang runs. Clearly, without Little Mo there, there is a huge vacuum that neither Chris nor Russ in his awesome shiny suit from last week are filling <laughs> or filling well anyway. Chris does have a good point when he says when Little Mo says, I'm desire through and through, and Chris responds, we are desire. I think there is something to be said for that, especially when you're coming at from Chris's point of view, losing his brother, all that they all sacrifice and give up potentially and put themselves in the line of fire for Big Mo and for desire. There's there's something there when he says we are desire that I think has merit and weight to it, that Big Mo definitely doesn't appreciate or isn't at least acknowledging. Yeah, I can't quite put my finger on it. I want to word this exactly right. I know I'm not going to, but there is something about how that loyalty does run with all of them. You know, she was kind of taking it that their loyalty was to Big Mo. And in reality, their loyalty stands with the group, you know, looking out for one another. And that equals desire equals the gang. And so it's easy to say, you know, like, like, look, we're desire. Like, how do you how do you even have a group if there's no group, you know, to actually look out for one another? Like, there's no way to have this without numbers, without actual people. We're desire because we're the ones looking out for one another. And I think Little Mo and Big Mo show what like true loyalty looks like in this feels like you're saying loyalty is earned but maybe betrayal is earned also you're really good at the segues <laughs> you blew up a good deal so you could impress your girl how's that working out for you you got to be really feeling yourself to walk in here talking shit why'd they get to you you never should have made me a free agent. Well, that's your justification for being disloyal. Loyalty's earned. So is betrayal. Oh, you here to give me a philosophy lesson? Lil Mo? I'm here to give you a message. From Chris. And from me. A long time ago, You say when it comes to desire, it's all in or all out. You haven't been all in for a while. It's time to get out. 
owe to be a fly on the wall what happened next in that conversation, given how this episode turns out. It is very curious because I because with that line, I mean, it did not I did not draw a line to where it ended up like I didn't make that connection. No, no. Which I appreciated the twist that's coming at the same time. And I would have loved to have seen what deal they worked out. But maybe the final episode maybe reveals little Mo had to negotiate something for himself. I can't see him just returning as her right hand man again. He essentially saves her from losing desire, if not being outright killed by joining up with her again and reinforcing his loyalty to her. He had to have negotiated something for himself. So I'm hoping in the final episode, we figure out what we we can fill in the missing blank of what that conversation went on to entail in order to get to the twist here in the end. It feels very important, doesn't it? It does. Maybe maybe she is does want to run the club. And thinking, remember, at this point, she thinks she's going to have this life with Janelle and the club and Desi Boulay, and that's going to be her thing. Maybe she is handing over the drug-running aspect of Desire to him wholly, making him essentially a, a sub-CEO of Desire, where he is in charge of all things gang and drug-related. All things gang. I love it. Uh, gas and uh, propane and propane accessories, as, as right. it were. That's also what the, the job description is. Like, you will be in charge of gang and gang-related activities. <laughs> For, gang, gang and gang-related gang activities. Dr- drug and drug paraphernalia activities. Yes. yes. Big Mo, first appearance in this episode at 22 and a half minutes of a 54, 55-minute episode, surprised me. When she came on screen, I made a note to myself to look at what the clock was because I realized we hadn't seen her yet. That itself was interesting, and maybe also is the show metaphorically saying that Big Mo's time is slipping. Maybe her time is coming to an end. Maybe the sun is setting on the reign of Big Mo. She can't even get in the fucking show until 22 and a half minutes. I don't have a good sense of where Big Mo stands in terms of like finances and status and everything. Like, can she walk away and just go work at the club and do that and be okay? Or is it like, no, she's in this entire deal with Roderick and the cartel and everything. Like, she can't just go become a club manager. Like, she doesn't have the ability to just walk away cleanly. Like, is that even on the table that Little Mo could take over Desire and Big Mo can just, like, cleanly walk away? Well, let's let's play the twist and talk about what we see in this scene. Because the, Roderick plays into this in an interesting way that I think is worth talking about as we talk about the entire unraveling of Chris's grand plan. Yeah, let's just take it one deal at a time. I'm not sure I have too much confidence in the stability of the institution. This? Right there, Roderick reveals, Roderick knows what's about to happen, which I think is important. That line, and then obviously the way he reacts to when Little Mo takes the gun off of Chris and Big Mo reveals herself, the way he doesn't react beyond saying, oh, it seems like you guys still have some stuff to figure out. That line to him of, I I don't know how stable your your enterprise is, right? Roderick lives and dies by his word you know, drug honor code. So he's not going to tell Chris in this scene, yeah, 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 we're going to be doing deals forever. You know, right. He says in his own Roderick code drug guy way that uh, don't count your chickens before they hatch. So that's that's revelatory that they must have clued Roderick in on what was about to happen here, which just keep that in mind as it all plays out. Let's uh, let's listen to the whole clip now without me interrupting. Yeah, let's just take it one deal at a time. I'm not sure I have too much confidence in the stability of the institution. This? This is just the beginning. 
looking more like the enemy. Slow down, playboy. So it looks like you guys still have some shit to work out, huh? We good? We good. And then pues. God save the queen. Damn right. I made this shit look so easy. You got it in your head that you could be me. You fucking traitor. You see, I don't think you know what that word means. How the fuck is you sign word? That right there is my auntie. How the fuck you think I would turn against her? Blood is blood. You made a bad call. Tam may give up desire one day, but ain't a motherfucker that's gonna take that shit from me. First things first, Little Mo has got this sexy ass Al Green, Isaac Hayes, real purr about his voice in this scene. Like, I don't think you know what that word means. That there's my auntie. What do you think I'm going? <laughs> I was like, woo, woo. Like that's that's some good stuff. Little Mo, Little Mo's purr in there. So again, let's look at Roderick first before we get into the internal politics of it all. Just the way he says, "We good." He says, "God save the queen." You know, all of that. Oh, P.S. I really love. This that actually I, I like i said that like 15 times after he said that i was like i really like you said god save the queen like i i, I don't know why but i it really that that piece of writing it, it stuck out for me and i was like ooh, like chef's kiss like that was a really good line i really like that i think it all goes towards pointing that roderick knew exactly what was going to go down here the only one who didn't know was chris and chris's goons outside everyone else knew what was going to happen I, and I know this is like a super side note, especially on like a penultimate sitch, but it, it's such a glimpse into Roderick and, and the people that they're dealing with. Like, this is someone who is not just like some whatever, just like drug runner that, that you know, is like living down in, in the sewers or something like that. Like, he's referencing royalty, like, you know, in Britain, like God save the queen. Like, he's really, he's a much more worldly guy. And, and there's a lot more sophistication going on here with this new group that they're dealing with that, that I think is like very easy to understand estimate and then all of a sudden you're like oh man okay hold up now well, like these these guys are a little more a little more with it travel ball coaches are very sophisticated and worldly <laughs> people as it turns you out. know what he was slick the whole time when you think about the the fact that he was you call it travel ball so we call it like competitive here to me there's something that speaks to him the development of that character though that has maintained such a great consistency because he was so unbothered throughout Unflappable. you know Unflappable. yeah i mean he was doing batting practice he's sitting there doing a drug deal knowing he's basically stepped in the middle of an entire gang you know blow up here but he is so smooth and so cool about the whole thing like you know this man has seen this story a thousand times where he comes in and some shaky situation because that's the only reason why this type of deal was made was because it was a shaky situation that blew up that now this is trying to salvage something of a deal he's Probably seen this happen so many times. But at the same time, yes, I, you're right. This is definitely a, uh, a Fortune 500 company having to deal with a small branch that seems like it doesn't have the maybe best financials and some shaky leadership. But they're going to give it a chance because, you know, business is business. And if the deal works out, great it's for them. It's just the freaking nature of business that you're going to have to deal with these ever-changing, uh, you know, who's the boss situations. But they came up with the money up front that he demanded. The Vegas running. He's making good interest on the drug 
drug deal. And now they're at the point where they can actually start moving Roderick's product in, in the quarter and, and all over New Orleans. It's a good deal for Roderick. Plus, he's now saved face with his bosses. So he's not going to get killed. Unflappable, yes, but he very much understands the reality. He's a middleman. He is, he is, a, he is Michael Scott and Jim and Dwight. He's, he's a paper salesman. He's got his orders. He's got to go push paper. He's got to go sell 10 reams, 20 kilos of reams of paper out in the neighborhood. What a funny way to think of Roderick. I would never would have compared him to, the, to that. But okay, interesting. Yeah, it's kilos, kilos of reams of paper. He's moving the same thing. And now he, yeah. he, he, they came up with the cash. I think had they not been able to come up with that initial cash, which they needed from selling the three kilos of fentanyl lace drugs, this wall would have gone by the wayside. And we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Roderick or more likely Roderick's bosses would have come in and killed them all. And we mm. wouldn't have Desire 2.0 or anything. But they did, and so now they can move forward on doing business. So really interesting. The Roderick character, great villain. I think one of the best villains the show has had. With such a little part, you understand a lot about who he is. The little league coach, the travel ball coaching, and the unflappable nature really draws a picture of of the ice in this guy's veins. His 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 heartbeat never gets raised. You You can be sure of that. He's been in this life since go. Desire 2.0, really just little Mo and Big Mo teaming up to put down the coup. Great twist. I, I thought it was a great twist. Like I said, I, I really want to give to episode 10 to see what did little Mo negotiate for himself. It has to be more. I know he's saying it's blood and that's enough to Chris and outwardly, but for his own his own self he had to have negotiated something some reward because like he says in that in the middle clip he is a free agent she did oust him and blood kept him alive but blood doesn't necessarily buy desire worker be loyalty anymore she fired right. him essentially from that role so he had to have negotiated something for himself to make it worth to come back into the fold I agree with you. It seems like it would be reasonable that that would be some sort of exit strategy plan for Big Mo and whether what the time frame is for that, I don't know. But that's what it seems like would be the logical conversation. Which she hints at in that clip. I may hand off desire one day, but ain't no motherfucker going to come in here and take it from me. You know, saying I, I, I may step down from being the queen one day. I may abdicate the throne, but it will be my choice, not your choice. And certainly not a coup d'etat that that does it and takes me off of the throne. I like all this queen regal stuff. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big royal royal watcher. So, oh, uh, yeah, I know, nice. I know. Uh, R.I.P. Chris. I got to ask a question, and this is going to be something to, interesting to watch. Do we think the fact that Little Mo can't pull the trigger on Chris and Big Mo has to come and actually put Chris down is that going to be an issue now? And maybe we'd never get an answer on this. But Little Mo just back in the fold, and he can't pull the trigger. He can't shoot the guy that was about to supplant Big Mo, maybe kill Big Mo. Is that going to be an issue that sticks in the back of Big Mo's mind of whether or not she can really trust Little Mo? Yeah, I think it's a huge, huge issue. I, I was pretty surprised that he couldn't pull the trigger. Were you? 
I was, but I think it goes towards Little Mo's heart. As much as he was trying to sell Eugene on, you can have friends and you can have soldiers, but you can't have both. The line got blurred. I think he was very sincere when he came to Chris's house and comforted his mother in the wake of Terrence's death and hugged Chris. And and I think that was sincere. I think this was hard for him. I think Little Mo does blur the line. For as tough a guy as he is, as, as ruthless a business as they're in, I think Little Mo has a big old soft heart. Uh, surrounded by a candy shell, for sure, but I think the inside is kind of mushy. Yeah. That, that that's going to be a problem for Big Mo. It should be a problem for Big Mo because if you can't put down this guy who egregiously, from Big Mo's point of view, needs to be put down, well, that's an issue. And it was just such a pivotal moment. I mean, it was such a moment of, you know, are you loyal to Big Mo? Are you on this side kind of thing? And I know, I know he was in words, but when it came to action, he is either a very soft heart which we said at the beginning i mean i said all that you know eating cereal watching cartoons his soft heart for eugene this has been well established who he really is at his core do you think big mo expected him to have the gumption to to pull the trigger or did she know he wouldn't i think she knew he wouldn't because she other than a look and it's a pointed look to be sure she had a gun ready she stepped up. She didn't goad him. There was no shaming him. So I wonder if maybe given the situation, this is one of those, you get a pass. Besides, she maybe wanted to really do it herself to drive home the point, right? The lore is going to go forth from here. Big Mo shot Chris. Big Mo secured her throne. So that actually works from her from a PR standpoint. But there has to be a little, if he was fully into it, words are words, but actions are actions. And and words are win to use Game of Thrones' parlance. Uh, and, And actions really express your feeling. And the fact that he couldn't do it, I think, has to sit in Big Mo's brain when it comes to, can I rely on him in clutch moments that really matter? But do you think in her heart of hearts, when it was like, because this feels to me a lot like tapping Carlo to step forth and and come forward. She was like tapping him on the shoulder, like, all right, here you go. Here you go. Be be the leader. And he couldn't do it. Did she know that? Was it a test or, 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 and did he fail or, or was it like, nah, she knew he wouldn't do it and it's whatever, par for the course? I think she didn't expect him to do it. So he did exactly what she expected from him. I think had he done it, it would have only helped his chances. I think him not doing it didn't hurt his chances. So it was just a neutral sitch. It was a neutral. I think she went in there okay. thinking she was going to be the one to have to do it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Not, not unlike uh, Draco Mal. Foy when he's assigned to kill Dumbledore. No one really thinks he's going to be able to do it and in fact can't do it. That's why you know there are other wizards that are assigned to kill Dumbledore including Snape. So yeah just you know Harry Potter and uh, and your honor very very similar. The desired drug game. Practically the same. Practically the same. I can barely tell the difference when I turn on the television. One thing that and, and I think my opinion of whether or not she expected it to, him to do it whether or not she's actively holding this against him for not pulling the trigger like was it a test was it was it a loyalty test or was it a gumption test or like he's with her at the club when we see her in the final episode he's there he's handling money she he has he has reassumed the place at her right hand if she was really down on him i don't think he would have even been there okay 
my opinion that I'm giving now is informed by what we saw happened after this scene. But it okay. did ping for That's me for fair. sure to, to, to mark it. Let's get to this. Let's finish Desire. This is a heartbreaking scene if you're a romantic. I'm curious what your opinion on Janelle is here and her reaction to this. This is the proposal. Big Mo opens her heart as much as she possibly can, and Janelle kind of stomps all over it. Let's take a listen to the proposal. For better or worse. I need you to love all me too. Everything I got, I fought for. I bled for. This club, I bought for me. I bought it for my papa. Bought it for my daddy. But that stage right there, I bought that shit for you. What good is this club without the stage? I am the best version of myself when I'm with you. And it kills me. It kills me that you don't realize the same is true for you. Let's talk about consequences of your actions as well as trust no one, as well as judging people for right and wrong. They're all present in the Desire storyline tonight. Big Mo, Chris had consequences for his actions of trying to take on the queen. Big Mo put herself in the position of her actions of paying attention to the club over Desire, which led to that coup. But now Janelle is giving her the consequences of her actions for for choosing the life over Janelle over and over and over again. I, I don't know that you can demonstrate consequences for your actions more so. And Janelle certainly judging. Uh, she hasn't learned to not yet judge people for their actions, despite Big Mo saying business is business and you and me are you and me. And it is a separate thing. Janelle's not being able to make that wall. And she is giving this ring back, handing it back into her hand because she is still judging right and wrong, even though Big Mo has implored her not to. All the themes wrapped up in this scene here. I'm curious your take. Did it surprise you that Janelle Hat took this reaction. I I thought the idea of you uh, bring out the best version in me, I wish you could see it too, would resonate with you. It definitely resonated with me. It's an important part of loving someone deeply. I, 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 I was a little surprised that it shook out this way. I thought these two would make it over the hump from last week, but I'm curious your take. Somehow, and, I, and I'm grasping to figure out exactly what the subtle moment was, it was telegraphed that Janelle was going to close the ring box. I, don't, I can't tell you exactly her motions with her hand. I can't explain to you exactly the way the ring was presented. But the second the ring came out and, they, and the, just the box and they started to even just, just get into it, I could picture it, though. Like, I could picture the clam shell like slapping closed kind of feel of the ring box closing I know exactly what you mean she was crying she was crying in a i'm about to give bad news way and not in yeah. a oh my god the happiest day of my life way it was it was a right. subtle acting i noted it to the same idea of oh she is about to, to say no it, it was mm -hmm. I, th I think watch it again i think it's the way she's crying and kind of trembling it, it's it's a negative vibe coming off of her when she's doing it 
For me, I mean, I can see this scene and the conversation about, I, you know, I can walk away from, you know, this on my own for Big Mo, but I'm not going to have it, like, taken away from me. I could see that in episode 20 here, I could see where Big Mo could willingly give up that side and choose Janelle. Because, again, you've you made it such a good point at the very beginning that they chose to cast a well-known actress with her with with wonderful chops when it comes to singing everything that I feel like it doesn't make sense to me to have Big Mo without her next episode I could see them getting back together and that be the finale for Big Mo and Big Mo gets out of the gang and Little Mo takes over Desire because that feels like a choice that she could make like this feels real like that she could still get Janelle back if she because she's kind of she's still trying to play that game of like I can separate business from love and you know you need to just not pay attention to that side of it and you know this whole idea that you can love somebody fully and ignore an entire portion of their life you know that's dangerous and that you're very against and all that stuff I mean that, that does seem like way too tall of an order right like I understand within like the mafia and stuff like that that people do this kind of stuff all the time but I don't know I don't see it do you like could could you be somebody who could ignore like like the entirety of that person's like job when they're away from you and still be able to hang in there no I don't think so not 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 in this fact pattern we we talked about the club go back to the club opening and janelle is singing dangerous woman to mo to to monique very pointedly looking at her and singing those words and talking about how she wants to be a bad girl and she she wants the danger she feels bulletproof and 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 living that wild side taking a walk on that wild side but when push comes to shove janelle is not comfortable with it think back to the what are you do monique what are you doing when when she's basically about to have little mo killed or maybe have little mo killed and they had that conversation out there and, and and janelle says it's not some orphan you took him from the street corner that's your that's your blood and if you don't know the difference i don't know what we're doing here but that was, as it turned out, a larger metaphor for her not being okay with any of this. She really wants and needs Big Mo to only be a legitimate club owner and her love. And the the reaction with the guns drawn and the smashed up club and all of that that was that ended last episode was feels like now the straw that broke that camel's back but really i don't think janelle was ever okay with it i I think the fantasy of it was much more attractive to her than the reality of living it so do you think they have any shot of getting together in the finale can can this be fixed or no i don't know how janelle walks back this feeling unless there is an overt act from big mo that says i have handed over that entire side of the business to little mo i am just here for the club for papa my grandpa and you and that's it I, by the way, in that little speech she gives, I love it. She's like, what's this club without the stage? I love that line. I thought that was I thought it was a great little metaphor. But that's why I feel like it. that's why it feels not finished. Like, oh, I don't think it's finished. You know? I think we see Janelle again, but I think it has to be from Big Mo. It has to be that level of overt act and not words, actual action. Janelle is going to have to see for Big Mo to get anything here i don't think she's just gonna roll over i don't think she's gonna be like i don't even remember that woman's name who's singing in my club right next door you know i don't think i I think she's definitely going to appear and big mo will try but i think it's gonna take that level of act from her 
And it, it makes sense to me, though, to hand desire over to little Mo and and for her to get out of this life, you know, and move on. Like that actually feels like this character grew, went through this entire journey, made some different choices. Love at the end of the day wins out for Big Mo. You know, like th- that would actually be an entire journey for her that it would is kind of exciting to me. But maybe it's too fairy book. Maybe it's too well, silly. Like I don't know. Let's go back to the clip that the first one that we played. Little Mo says, "You told me a long time ago you're either all in or you're all out. You haven't been in for a while, so now it's time to get out." Maybe the maybe it wasn't a threat on her life. Maybe the part we didn't see is go be with your girl at the club, be out because you can't be all in or all out. Go give me the business. You still get your kickbacks. You're still going to make money from the business, but I get to run it the way I want to run it. And you go get to be in the club and have your girl and live that life. You're already doing it anyway. You're already out mentally. You're just not physically out. That actually makes that a nice bookend because it comes back to that message that he delivered on behalf of himself and Chris, rest in, rest in peace, Chris, but um, on the message delivered on behalf of himself. And it answers the question of what does little Mo get out of coming back? It actually ties up a lot of things very nicely and thematically makes it all make sense. Well, and I also would add that the larger theme of like, once you get into something, you can't ever get out, like you're stuck forever it actually like turns that on its head and says I, you can get out eventually there there could still be like a ray of sunshine you know peeping through the door crack because if mo if big mo gets out that implies that everyone else has the potential to get out of whatever their situation is michael fia jimmy gina everybody could get out because she's like the example like look somebody got out over here they they managed to get out of this um and and have a life that they actually wanted in a show that has been historically and epically low on hope yeah. I, I i i love that idea that at the end of the day there actually is a crack of sunshine a ray of sunshine that comes down into this world and and allows hope to live and how do you get hope to live you choose love so she chooses janelle it's like if you choose love you can do it you can get out the most powerful form of magic it speaks to jimmy and michael and and what rocco baby rocco means to them like if you choose love maybe you can get out of this bad life man you know where hope is in desperate need of supply the courthouse in new orleans Oh, boy. And this idea of hope and love actually plays very well into this whole storyline as this trial begins. The the trial of the Noor of, of Louisiana versus Eugene Jones begins. What did you think of the fact that we're just right into the trial? The, no pre-trial stuff. We don't actually get to see him stand up with no opening statements and say, I'm not guilty or anything like that. They were just we're picking up no deal in the last episode or right into the trial this episode. Uh, hinting at, again, another week of uh, several weeks time time jump because Lee even mentions that they've had weeks to prepare this case when they say they want to call Michael. 
It felt important that we just jump right into it because we we know all the preliminaries. You know, first of all, we've seen a trial before in the show, so it's not like we need to retread that ground. And we know the story that's going to be told about what has happened. So it, it was fine by me, especially at this point in the story to just like jump right in, jump right in. Let's get going. Uh, let's look at Lee in this first scene that we look like when we see her in the bathroom. She looks like she wants to vomit. And when we see Eugene, who I don't think we actually hear from in this episode at all. Like, I, I don't think he says anything. I think he's just on screen. Also looks like he wants to vomit. Not a great way to start confidence building wise when your lawyer looks like she's going to hurl everywhere. But it was this line of all that matters is you walk out of here with your freedom. Lee, I would counter that given the circumstances and what he's on trial for and the evidence stacked against him. I think all that matters is that Eugene walks out of here with his life. I don't know that freedom is actually the first concern here. Him not being killed either by the system or by the Baxters or by Senator Grandma or any of the other people that may want to take a shot at him, given the amount of people who have tried to kill him. I think him being alive should be our first power mount concern. You'd think so. I mean, I don't even think Lee can go there, you know, in her brain. Yeah. And I about, guess you don't want like, to say that, that to is, him either. No, he's still a little guy. You know, even though he's been through so much, he's he's still a little guy. I've got to note the audience here. We have Charlie coming in just as the trial's about to begin, and he sits with Senator Grandma and Fia. Senator Grandma obviously not being in receipt of the knowledge, I would imagine, that we now know about Charlie and the role he played in Robin's death. I can't imagine Senator Grandma welcoming him, welcoming him welcoming him into the pew with the smile and, and warm kind of nod that she gives him also we have creepy carmine conti staring at fia with like a little weird smile on his face <laughs> he has a way huh just with his just with his stares of uh i know he's borrowing on his breaking bad yes. salamanca um you know like persona when he's like doing these kind of stares i, I can it's feel him as hell it know? is it and, is and a thousand more percent more without the bell to to do all of this talking for him <laughs> right but I, I well think think if you're gina and you're carmine and you're that family and you have fia sitting with the state senator and the mayor and not sitting with her family what kind of scandal and personal insult? You Gina, who Gina, who's insulted by everything that doesn't go exactly her way. Imagine what she must be feeling seeing Fia sitting several rows ahead of her. I think constant seething pissiness. Let's get to ADA Rawls' opening statement. The statement is genius because it is powerful and it is simple. And juries like compelling stories that are easy to understand. And he delivers it. We're not going to play the entire thing. It's it's too long. Both of their opening statements were too long to play the entire thing. But I'm going to I'm going to play a key portion of it. And as much as I love Eugene, I was still moved by how powerful an opening this was. Eugene Jones sat in the courtroom and watched Carlo Baxter get acquitted on all charges for the murder of his brother Kofi. And then Eugene Jones took matters into his own hands. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is a case about simple revenge. It's not complicated. The state will show that Eugene Jones purchased a gun and came to the hotel that night with murder on his mind. He fired the gun at Carlo Baxter and killed Adam Desiato instead. The defense will try to confuse you. And they'll try to convince you that what you see 
clear as day is not what it looks like. And perhaps there is good reason to have compassion for this young man. But everything the defense will say is designed to make you look away from the simple truth that Eugene Jones went to the Baxter House Hotel that night with the intent to kill. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he could have just dropped the fucking microphone and walked away. What's your take on this? As someone who just finished watching the 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 murder murders in real time and <laughs> and being immersed in courtroom culture, I was curious your take on this on this opening statement. I think it was compelling. I think he hit all the points that he needed to, especially when he acknowledged that, yeah, you know, perhaps compassion and, and some empathy, you know, really comes into play here. But we need to remember that, you know, like legally, that's that's not part of this. You know, you can be a human and feel bad for him, but he still made bad choices and he still did this. This is something that we've been saying, actually, for, for the last couple of episodes of like, you know, you have to almost remind yourself that like he did do this. He did kill Adam. We're so ready to be compassionate for Eugene that it's it's like we have to remind ourselves like, yeah, but he, I mean, he did make a really horrible choice. Great opening statement. I think that it, it was exactly what he needed to say. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if I was in the jury, I'd be like, okay, this feels like we're starting off fair. You know, like he did do something. You may feel compassionate. You may feel like there's some, have some empathy that, that this guy's been through a lot, but also he did break the law and there does need to be a punishment like it, it seems fair you know like it wasn't too over the top a basic tenant of speech giving whatever speech you're giving is people are generally only going to remember the first thing you say and the last thing you say he understands this and he delivers the most important parts in the beginning and the end the beginning eugene watched his brother's killer go away scot-free bought a gun with and went to the Baxter house with revenge on his mind. He ends it by saying Eugene went to the Baxter house looking to kill and that's exactly what he did. That's it. Uh, that's exa- and that's but yeah, that's exactly what happened. And he is so smart that he does say you may want to give compassion, undercutting your opponent's case by acknowledging what your opponent's case is going to be is a great argument strategy, not just in courtrooms. Anytime you're arguing with someone, acknowledge what the other side's argument is going to be because it immediately undercuts it so he's so smart by putting them on notice by putting the jury on notice you're going to hear a compassionate plea you're going to hear an emotional plea from the defense because they can't argue the facts they can only make an emotional plea that's why that's so smart to say you may want to you know extend compassion to this young man but we can't lose sight of what we did. He went there looking to kill and he did kill. He just maybe didn't intend, he just didn't kill the person he intended, but that's not important for the law. It's a really, really powerful opening statement. I, I give, I give whoever wrote that a lot of credit. I, I was totally sucked into it. <laughs> well, and any time that you shed light on that other side, when you start to say, you know, I know you're going to feel this way. I know you're going to feel that way. It validates the jury's feelings. It's like, it's okay. We get it. You're just a person. You you don't want to look at this little boy's face and think bad things. I get it. And it's okay to feel those ways, but we have to apply the law to the situation. And that's where your feelings have to take a backseat. Having been 
the armchair murder murders investigator. I feel like there was a lot of that going on of like you gotta for good and for bad. Sometimes you have sometimes you are asked to ignore things that you wish you can consider because it it would make a difference in the way that you feel. But if you just apply the law and only the law, well, it's it becomes pretty cut and dry. Now we have to compare that to Lee's opening statement, which as uh, ADA Rawl predicts in his opening statement is emotional based. It is drawing on not facts, but distrust and the system screwing you. And it draws on levy breaking, which is always going to resonate with people in Louisiana, especially in New Orleans. It, it, it is emotionally charged. I'm not going to play the beginning of it where she says she hates the building. She hates the courtroom. She hates being a lawyer because it's taught her that the system is rigged and it's all bullshit. I'm not going to play that part. I'm going to play the end of her opening statement where she really starts drilling into the heart because that has to be her strategy. That is the only thing that she can rest upon here. She can so she can so distrust among the police and the government and the guy in the robe with just a piece of cloth. She can do all that. But at the end of the day, if Eugene is going to walk out of here a free person and have his his uh, a chance to walk out of here with his freedom, like she says at the beginning of their scene together, she has to appeal to them emotionally to get them to render a not guilty verdict. Let's listen to Lee's opening. Every witness they are going to call has their own reason to point the finger at Eugene Jones. It's almost as if all of their problems will vanish if they can just dispose of this boy. Sometimes the city can turn against you. It will allow your life to crumble, your family to be wiped out. The levees are supposed to hold. But when they don't, don't trust anyone. Here's the wildest part of all. Despite a police force that attacked him, a justice system that failed him, and a city that turned its back on him, Eugene Jones has chosen to trust you. Please take care of this child. I mean, if this isn't Caroline coming through in this end here, this please take care of the child. I was like, that, that that's exactly how Caroline would end her opening <laughs> statement. You can appeal to all this stuff, and I do appreciate it. I really do. And 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 obviously, we we get to Gina on the stand, and we get to understand more about how these facts are going to be presented, and who's who did see what, and and you know, can he be identified and everything. I appreciate relying on the emotion, but. <sighs> man, I, it still gets me to this day that he did it. Like, it still doesn't make sense to me that he actually really did pull that trigger that night, you know, because because I want to explain it away. I don't want Eugene to have done this. And, and we saw him do it, but I still want somehow to be like, oh, he like tripped and fell and pulled the trigger or something, you know, right. give some other rational reason for how this could have happened because your brain almost can't wrap around this 
child, as Lee says, having done this. Right. And listen to her opening statement. Listen to her entire opening statement again. That was that was a heavily edited clip. Nowhere in there does she say my client didn't do this. Not once. She never says he didn't do it. She just she focuses her entire argument on the city, the system, the government, the police force. There's a great cutaway to Charlie when she's talking about Rudy and how the fact that they can't put Rudy on the stand because Rudy killed himself after it turns out he, in fact, wasn't dead, even though Charlie they flash to Charlie when she's going through and she says, and then he was found dead and the quarter was pronounced safe again. And the and the camera flashes to Charlie's face and he's like he's like pulling at his bow tie, you know, like <laughs> and then Rudy killing himself and suspicious and they flash to Nancy in the courtroom, which again, no lines, but we see her at that moment in the courtroom. The the camera is implicating all of these people, and she is dead on when she says there has been concerted effort. Everyone for their own reasons and their own motives has wanted to kill Eugene and erase him from this world as if it will solve all all of their problems. So she's pointing the figure outwards to everyone about a manhunt for this boy. The argument is going to have to be drove him to this point. But listen very carefully. She never, ever says he didn't do it, which is telling. It, it's it's telling on what her strategy is going to be. Her strategy is going to be Eugene was forced into this situation by a society stacked against him. She never says he didn't do it, though, and I think that's important. It, it really is solely pulling at your heartstrings to, to misdirect you, which is what ADA Rawls says they are going to do, and don't be fooled by it. The way that it is laid out like that, it really finally should should put the connections for people that Eugene was in the same bad situation that Michael was in in so many ways choices were made twists and turns happened but but there were like failings along the way you know like people who should have been able to be trusted weren't trusted you know the system that should have worked he should have been able to go in and turn Adam in and 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 everybody he should have been able to be protected and everything should have been fine but nothing worked the way that it's supposed to work and so then this person who whomever it is, Eugene, Michael, whomever is staying there, maybe even Adam, had to do what they had to do in order to survive. A lot of the argument could be used to Michael. So I find it fascinating how angry she is with Michael later because it's like she's not capable at all of giving any of this, like, you got caught up in a situation that you never should have been put in. Michael involves sex in that, though. And a direct oh, manipulation no, of her feelings. Lee. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that they're the same. What I'm trying to say is that there's connections there. That 100%. Were drawn she's never that gonna appreciate it. She's never she's never gonna see those though because she can't get past the blatant manipulation of, but as of audience her. members, we should. You know, like 100%. listeners who are hearing us should absolutely stop and say, Wow, you know, if if we can have this much compassion for Eugene, you know, or some people are the other way. Some people have all the compassion for Michael and none for Eugene. And it's like, do you see though, like what, why Eugene did the things he did? It's, it's interesting. Cause I, I don't think people fall for both of them. I think that they are either much more Eugene or much more Michael, even though they're not up against each other or anything like that. It's not like you should be team Michael or team Eugene. It's just that they're willing to apply the, like he had to do what he had to do usually to only one of them. 
it's the perfect rubber meeting the road of all three themes we established at the beginning. This is an entire trial about the consequences of Eugene's actions, just like the larger show is, a, is about the consequences of Michael's actions. You're introducing this idea of trust no one because it's all out to fuck you. When she says the levees are supposed to hold, sometimes the city turns on you. That I is power. That so is power. I, I am not from the South. I, I live in upstate New York. I don't have to deal with hurricanes or, or the fallout from it. But my soul, like my, my, my inner soul felt for the people listening to those words because that means something really tragic and traumatic. Even so many years out, what are we? 13 years out now more from Katrina uh it, it it when she says the levees are supposed to hold I was like oh my god like I felt it I, I yeah and I mean you it's it's powerful it's powerful imagery it means so much it, it means so much to me so I'm in Houston for those of you who don't remember and and um you know we had Hurricane Harvey here and when those protections when the when the the system being the government being the the um the systems that are supposed to protect us fail through stuff like that like like literally the the levees breaching I mean <sighs> The amount of fear and how like absolutely vulnerable you feel as as just this little person in the world who cannot stop this from happening. For us in my town, they opened up the gate, the floodgates at 2 a.m. in the morning with no warning to our community. People woke up and stepped out of bed to like over their knees water in their bedroom with zero warning that they were going to open those gates. So there's like things that happen that you're like, oh my God, you were supposed to protect us. You know, you you people who were there were supposed to let us know that that was going to happen so that we could at least, you know, make some sort of, you know, logical choices and stuff. But then you get thrust into this position where now you're making these desperate choices. And it, it does beg the question of like, like how much can a person reasonably be expected to do um, to stay on the right side of things when it's pure survival. Let's make the blunt connection for those that think we're we're dealing in flowery language here. The connection is the system that didn't protect the people in New Orleans, that didn't protect the people in Houston, that let the floodgates open, that the levees didn't hold because they weren't done properly. Well, like money was usually get, gets uh, diverted and so maintenance doesn't happen on those levees. That when the, the system failed those people in the same way, the system failed to keep Kofi alive. The system failed to put Carlo away for killing Kofi. Michael failed as, as a representative of this, of the man in the cloth on the, on the, on the bench the court system failed to keep that alive the the system failed to keep the jones family alive forcing eugene into this course of action and i'm not saying what he did was right what he did was wrong and he does need to be held to account the the idea of a negligent homicide plea and gets out in three years and and for who he is and for what he did that feels like justice to me letting him go free doesn't feel like justice to me there is should be an accounting for what he did but also play getting to the third theme of the episode i don't feel that i'm in the position to judge him sitting here watching it the the jury is supposed to judge him I hope that they do judge him fairly and give him give him the the sentence that he deserves, not what ADA Rawl is looking for, and let the system work the way it's supposed to work. Let the system protect the people that it's supposed to protect and not be failed again. It's a great 
example of all of the themes of the show and the parallel between Michael. You're so smart to, to, to make that because it is important. Eugene's story and Michael's stories do parallel each other more so than anyone in the show. Victims of their circumstances, victims of spiraling consequences for actions that they were driven to do or felt like they were driven to do that if they had to do again, maybe they don't. Uh, Michael, Mike, we're going to get to it in a bit. Michael goes on about all of the regrets he had about the choices he's made since this series has been on the air. I'm sure Eugene sitting in OPP night after night while his trial is going on is also going to be thinking about the choices that he made. Maybe he doesn't come back from from Houston. Maybe he never pulls that gun on Carlo. Maybe he puts Carlo down and, and no one knows that he's even back. Maybe he just takes his backpack. Maybe he just takes his backpack and, and doesn't forget. There are so many choices that we make. This is kind of like the everything everywhere all at once syndrome. Every choice we make spirals out into a million different sub branches that affect how our lives are going to unfold. Eugene is living through the worst timeline right now, or maybe not the worst timeline, but one of the bad timelines right now in the same way michael is living through one of the bad timelines i have no valid predictions because my heart is too wrapped up i'm too emotionally (laughs) wrapped up in eugene to to give a good analysis of how i think this is going to play out but i am pretty sure that come hell or high water next episode episode part 20 we're going to get a result on what's going to happen to eugene and it's time. I mean, I feel like, you know, they, they've brought it right to the point of this is the time for closure and for completion of Eugene's story. Tempo wise in the season and in, and across the series, they've actually met Eugene exactly at the right point to end, which doesn't always happen. Sometimes it feels super duper rushed at the end or sometimes they drag feet and start treading water. This actually felt like, OK, all right, we're like we're right at the point where we should get answers right when we sh- we need to have the answers. Let's talk a little bit about the trial before we move off of this gina no one's no one should put gina on the stand when she starts off (laughs) like literally the first words out of her mouth are dark figure come on gina what are you doing what are you doing in a new orleans courtroom going with this dark figure bullshit what is wrong with you Uh, um let's talk about the prosecution there's got to be at least three different security cameras in that ballroom in the baxter house i'm sure they have somewhere on camera on tape on recorded tape Eugene lifting the gun and firing it. Why isn't that the first thing? Why do you put Gina Baxter as your first witness? Don't do that. Put on put on a tech security expert and have them testify to this is Eugene. That's a gun. That's him firing it. This is the timestamp. We can corroborate it with three different cameras. If we learned nothing about Carlo this season is that he lives in front of a whole bank of security cameras. He can pull them up on his phone. It's, it's one of the upgrades he's made to the Baxter security. Why aren't they showing that? That I mean, just as far as this is crazy. This is ADA Raw. You had a great opening statement, but your your presenta- presentation of evidence is stupid. <laughs> well, we might be a little jaded about Gina in a way that maybe maybe the rest of the courtroom is not. But I agree with you. I mean, just just practically speaking, I mean, wouldn't you want to show the footage of of the cameras first, and then you can right. give whatever whatever human backing to that, like you know, the tension in the room or or the aftermath of the screaming and and Fia doing like like you can you can have Gina talk to speak to the emotion that the camera isn't going to be able to get you but just the mere facts that 
it was Eugene and it was his gun and this is what happened. You know, that you'd think would be established pretty quickly. And Gina, I mean, was like a... She was such a joke of a She, she was a bad me. witness. I, I thought I thought Lee was really smart going all the way back to how Carlo got into OPP from the prison where he was and painting her in there. And I really thought she was starting to paint the whole corrupt, don't trust the system angle. And it felt like that's what she was starting to do. But in fact, she was really just setting it up for, look at all the lengths you go to to save your son. But if you really saw the gunman, you don't make a movement in, in his direction to to step in front of the bullet nah gina you just you just testified all the herculean efforts you did to get him to be able to attend your other son's funeral it 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 was smart but i was kind of hoping she was setting up for because remember gina made that donation quote-unquote donation for the warden to use any way he wanted if he saw fit to allow carlo to get transferred the guards that had to step away inside of opp and allow kofi to walk from his cell into Carlo's cell, all of that, all of the things that happened that that go towards the corruption of the system against someone like Kofi or someone like Eugene. I, I really wanted her to keep on that. But I also like that she swerved to you do all this, but you don't take a step to him. Well, obviously it's because you didn't actually see the gunman. It, it was a, it was, it was an unexpected direction that she takes at the last second. It was very smart. I mean, Lee is very smart though. Like if anyone can, can twist this up in a way that gets Eugene out of there, it's Lee. I think that she, she really knows what needs to happen. You know, as we're moving forward with this, I mean, we all know where she ends up. As a reminder, for those that did not go back and rewatch the season one finale, just to refamiliarize yourself with what actually happened when Eugene does fire the gun at Carlo and hits Adam. I went back and looked at it. Gina is going to give Carlo a hug as Eugene arrives in the ballroom from the kitchen and raises his gun and fires. So she definitely did not see him. She was very pointedly looking only at Carlo and Carlo only looking at her when the gun is about to go off and then does go off. In fact, it's actually Carlo leaning in to give her a hug that makes him miss, that makes the bullet miss him and hits Adam. He's actually lined up for the bullet shot, but leans forward to hug his mother because they're staring at each other the bullet goes by and hits adam who was standing about 10 feet behind carlo michael does see the whole thing from the window outside the baxter house remember he couldn't get into the baxter house the security guards he shows up he ran all the way there from his house and he shows up all sweaty in his sweatpants and the guards outside won't let him in so he's looking at different windows and he in fact does see the shot because he screams instantly as it happens when when adam gets hit and in the confusion runs inside the ballroom and that's where adam dies in his lap so gina definitely does not see eugene fire the gun michael absolutely sees eugene fire the gun i I, you know it really it makes you want to like shake gina a little bit and to be like god why did you even put yourself in that position why didn't you just say you didn't see it like it's so it's so unnecessary though because we know he did it you know and so it's so unnecessary like there has to be other people in that room who did see something or there has to be like you said the footage of the cameras like to me it's a little forced to have gina be put on the stand like i'm positive she spun a story and insisted she get to testify i'm positive if we got to see 
if we got to see the 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 prosecution trial team putting this case together, they probably have fifteen at least witnesses that all that all actually probably did see the shot. I'm sure Gina forced her way into that conversation and said, I need to be the first one. It was my son she was he was trying to kill. And I'm sure spun a story that if you're in a prosecution it sounds exactly like what you want. The The mother of the attempted murder victim sees the whole thing. She's in the room. It, it, it sounds perfect. They probably didn't ask enough questions because it sounds too perfect. And I'm sure she forced the issue. I'm, I'm, I'm in fact, positive of it. <sighs> this all comes to a head, obviously. The fact and the reason I brought up the fact that Michael does see the shot is because after Gina's slightly disastrous or more than slightly disastrous testimony, the prosecution says that they want to add Michael to the witness list. This is a big controversial issue in, in trials. Discovery and the ability to prep witnesses and prepare for the other side's witnesses is a big part of the procedure of trials. So this is a radical thing. The fact that Lee reacts so outrageously or so offended at the suggestion, it is a real curveball. It, it's, it's not just courtroom drama. It's real drama for this to happen because lawyers spend a lot of time preparing for the witness witnesses, not only the witnesses they're going to call, but preparing cross examinations for the witnesses that the other side is going to call. And there are rules on how long in advance you have to give the list of witnesses so that the other side has the time to prepare to come up with the questions they need to ask. This is this is this is part of the criminal procedure. This is a big thing. So they they want to call Michael now because they think I'm I'm curious why they think he might have seen something other than the fact that maybe the fact that he was there and Adam dies in his lap, maybe they're making the assumption that he might have seen something. When If you listen to the conversation inside the judges' chambers, he says, we think Michael might have seen something. We don't know because he's refused to talk to us. But I'm curious why they even think that. Is it just because Adam died in his lap and he was on scene? Maybe part of his confession tape that we didn't get to hear the whole tape that Nancy has leads to that? I, I'm, I'm curious. So when I say forced, I didn't mean Gina forced her way into the situation. I mean, it feels a little bit, and I love the writing, and so, and I know that we have some Your Honor people who follow us, who, who are uh, part of the creatives and everything, and, you know, I give a lot of accolades to everything that we've seen. In this case, I understand you need to get Gina involved and you need to get Michael involved, but I'm saying it's a little... Like you said, that that conversation in the in the judges chambers doesn't even totally make sense because how many other people in the room were willing to talk to you and had seen things? It's just because for us in the show, these are the main players. So it's so where I say forced, I mean, like they forced the main players to be the key witnesses when in reality, that room was full of people, full of people who would have seen things. They, there should have been some other reason why. Why you would have had to funnel it down to only this small select group of people could have possibly seen something. Here's the catch 22 to that. And I agree with you, but here's the catch 22 to that. One, I think we have to remember this show does a lot of stuff off screen. In my head canon, based on 
ADA Rawls opening statement that we're going to show you tons of witness. I, he says we have, we have plan. I, I edited it out because it was filler for my purposes for the opening statement, but he says we've got lots of eyewitness accounts. We've got lots of forensics. So headcanon wise, I think they have all of Carlo's little rugrat friends getting up on the stand and testifying. It's just that here's the catch 22. Let's say anonymous young 20 something gets on the stand we'd be sitting here going they only have an hour left of the show why are we they showing this person we've never seen before testifying to this it, it- no but see what i'm saying is that and, and this is asking a lot as an audience member i'm asking a lot I'm, I'm asking for some mechanism to be in place to where it would have funneled down the witnesses down to only our main characters like i'm asking for something to be created here that's not here maybe you know something else had happened a noise happened often and like 90 percent of the room looked the other way or you know what i mean or there was a wall or they did wheel out the cake or there was something that that got in the way of 90 percent of the views point of view only now we're only left with this small handful who happen to be our main characters and this is why we're going with them i get it and i agree with you that like these would be the the better witnesses because they're not a bunch of you know perhaps drug dealers and whatnot although gina i don't even remember drug dealers i'm just saying i'm just saying characters we don't know like why why am i sitting having to watch uh, you know ada Rawl, you know question this extra yeah, no, we wouldn't have been cool with that at all. I just, you get what I'm saying, though, right? I, like, I do. Story-wise, narratively, yeah. could there have been a reason posed why a bunch of people weren't looking all in the same direction as our main characters? Yeah, I have a feeling that you'll hear in the closing testimony. If we get the closing testimony, I am sure it's going to include something like, you've heard from numerous eyewitness accounts about what happened that night that saw Eugene Jones lift, raise his hand and fire that gun. You heard from the the dead victim's father about what he saw that night. We heard from the attempted victim's mother about what she, you know, it's, it's going to come back around that way. You're you're going to hear that a lot of people testified, including these significant actors involved in the case. Just like I'm sure the Murdoch murders probably had lots of people on the stands. Some of the witnesses were probably much more interesting or close, more closely connected to the family than maybe others were. Right. So we're we're getting the highlights for why these people are being called. And Gina's a lying piece of shit. So I'm sure she lied. <laughs> I'm sure she told Rawl that she saw the whole thing and 20 feet away so it's right next to the guy who was supposed to be the victim who says she saw it and can describe it i saw a, a, a dark figure wearing a hoodie raise a gun and fire him yeah sounds good let's put her on the stand she's 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 a she's a she's a, a reliable witness but obviously she's not because she's a liar yeah she is. <laughs> so he shows up at the house at the end of the episode. Senator Grandma, not happy. Also completely lost in the conversation that's going on between Lee and Michael. That was pretty funny to see her so flustered. And just angry that the woman representing the person who killed Adam is there. Plus, she didn't. She never really liked Lee because she, uh, dude, because she was the love interest she was of, the of Michael. Yeah, I mean, and the the whole thing of like, I mean, remember how she treated her when she first came in? Remember how her, she looked so disheveled or whatever? Remember she came in for that dinner? Lee came in late, and oh my God, Senator Grandma was like sniffing around her. Like, when's the last time you had sex, lady? Like, she was like really all over her. 
So let, let's get straight what Lee is asking here. Lee is telling Michael, the prosecution wants to call you. I want you to get on the stand and I want you to lie and say that you did not see Eugene Jones do it or that someone else did it. And he says, I can't. Don't let me be involved in this. I told him I don't want to be involved in this. I'm done lying, which offends Lee that he spent all of the last season lying to her and everyone else and now won't lie to save this boy and try and right one of his wrongs. I get where she's coming from, but I also get where Michael's coming from. I'm curious how the audience in whole is going to take this interaction. I'm curious what your what your opinion of this is. Does Michael owe it to Lee? Does Michael owe it to Kofi Jones? Does Michael owe it to Eugene and the memory of of Adam to get on that stand and and be a savior for Eugene to the extent he can? It's so hard because, I mean, this is kind of going back to the whole, can you sort of detangle yourself from the mess that you've made? Can you do that by continuing to lie? I mean, I think the answer is no, you cannot. But is this the whole, you know, going back to the very beginning with our themes of right and wrong, and he no longer wants to be the judge of right and wrong. So is it more important that he uses his power to to get this kid back out into the world in a way that he has a chance at life is that more right than being factually correct about what you saw so like is it more morally right to let this kid have a chance out there and i and i would fall on that side that it's more morally right to try to save this kid's life because you know he's probably not going to make it through this time in the jail it's also it feels a little disingenuous to spend all of the time and this is lee's point of view i think i think this is the argument lee is making you spent all this time lying. You did everything to get Carlo off, Kofi's killer off. You were the one that really forced Eugene into doing what he did because the system failed justice for him and his family and his brother, all of whom are dead except for him. That's on you, Michael. So now, now you're going to pick the time to have a conscience and stop lying? Get the fuck out of here with that. <laughs> well, and back it up even further. I mean, you're pointing at Kofi and stuff, but look at how much you lied to save Adam. Look at how much you lied to save someone who you knew did wrong. You knew he murdered someone. And look at how much lying you did to save him. Why is Eugene not worth that? You know, why, why all of a sudden are you going to become picky about which teenager gets to live and who who has to die? I think maybe, and and maybe this is just a good TV narrative and not real life. But I think part of why Lee wants him to be on the stand is whether or not he's going to lie or not. Him being on the stand allows Lee the ultimate misdirection. She can use Michael to blow up everything. She can, once Michael's on the stand, she has an in to expose what Michael did in Carlo's trial and throw the entire fucking thing into chaos. Just a, a, a Molotov cocktail into the middle of the New Orleans juris, you know, juris system, the legal system. She gets that opening if she gets Michael on the stand because she gets to ask him, what did you what role did you play in getting Carlo acquitted, which forced Eugene to feel like he had to take matters into his own hands? What did you do? And and that's the prosecution's worst nightmare. That's why the blackmail was going to work before Eugene resisted taking any kind of deal. This is a nightmare for the prosecution. This is a nightmare for the government and for the state. Every single case that Michael tried will immediately come up for appeal and all of those people that 
that are in jail that Michael fairly oversaw their trials will have wonderful and almost bulletproof grounds for appeal to get out of jail. It will be a fucking nightmare if Michael's deception is exposed in court. Like, really, talk about consequences of actions. In order to save Eugene, Lee could lead to literally some of the worst criminals sitting in prison in New Orleans being let go. So again, that's just like right and wrong, correct? Like, you know, what is right? What is wrong? Do you want to be the judge of that? We started this show by asking the the catchphrase, what would you do in order to protect your child? That was the catchphrase at the beginning of the show way back in season one. How far would you go in order to protect your son? Well, this is now Lee's question. How far is Lee willing to blow up the system in order to protect her surrogate child in the form of Eugene? It's a real <laughs> thing. Like, I, 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 I feel like... I love I, when you're like, ah! <laughs> the stakes are high here. If Lee does this, the criminal nightmare that this will, uh, this will, the jurisprudence nightmare that this will create in Louisiana cannot be understated in a in a real sense in a real world sense if so this was to happen doesn't that make it seem like there's no way that's gonna happen i don't know no don't. for real be real like do you really think they're gonna end this entire show on every single case that michael ever did is now up for appeal and everything can be totally fallen apart maybe you maybe think? because why wouldn't lee do it lee doesn't want to be a lawyer anymore lee wants right? to be disbarred she's happy to blow everything up that's that's been well established it's the angela bassett walking away from the blowing up house gif that's lee and if it gets eugene off if it throws the jury into a tizzy or a mistrial such that they let eugene go can be worth it for her I, I mean, I hear you. I totally hear you. I'm just doing this solely from like a TV critics. Well, Do you think an entire series is going to end on Michael's cases now all being brought back up? Like, like an you really think this is where that's going? It gives you a threat if they were to do a season, season three, if Brian Cranston, and, and from everything I've read, whether or not this show comes back, because it, it continues to do well in the ratings for Showtime, the, the entire thing, linchpin, is if Cranston wants to do it more. If they were to do a season three, the fallout from Lee's Molotov cocktail, a metaphorical Molotov cocktail, is a great thread to follow up in season three. Is it, though? Is it that's what you'd want to watch? You want to you want to watch all the like cases being brought up and but, well, obviously they're not going to show that, but the fallout from it but though. Then, so then, what would the show be? What would it become? Like, I don't know if that's good TV. I don't know if that's what this audience. It's the wants ultimate to consequences see. for actions. Uh, maybe I guess so. It basically unravels Michael's entire life career. Right. It, 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 he asked Jimmy in this episode, "Do you think you've earned enough to get a second chance?" Well, put together with his not wanting to be a judge of right and wrong anymore, Michael, your entire career up until the very last smidgen has now been invalidated. There's some karmic justice Oof. there. Mike, has yeah. Michael suffered enough for everything he did? I don't know. Do you think he does? I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> but having his entire know. life's work of where he was your See, honor. It feels too far. It feels too far. But may, I mean, maybe, I guess. If it gets Eugene to live a little longer. <sighs> Man, we're asking the hard know. questions. How far do you go? If you're Lee, how far do you go? And maybe this is all hypothetical. Maybe this is not the route Lee takes, but it's certainly a match she has in her pocket that she can light. 
Mm-hmm. Because she's already played it. It was the it was the card she played. Right, right, right. But it didn't go. So that's the thing. That's where I'm struggling. Because it's like, yeah, the card was shown, but it wasn't played. But if you get Michael on the stand, it brings it up again. It opens it up. I know. It's no, the only no, thing no. Lee I'm can struggling. do. What else can Lee talk about truly straight face with Michael on the stand? She won't not be able to bring it up. Because Eugene's current situation is so specifically tied into the wrong things Michael did as a judge. It almost feels like she can't ignore it if he gets on the stand. Well, I can see where definitely going back to... Like, how did you ever meet Eugene's family? Like, where did this all start for you? It would be a bookend to the pilot in terms of like having to talk about going to the house and looking through the house because of, you know, the um, cop. You got, you, you got ma- magic around the corner eyes. Everything that happened. And so, I mean, we, we would get a chance to go back to that. I'm not against Michael getting on the stand, and I, but I, but I'm going to need Lee to do fancier footwork than this blunt instrument that you're saying of just blow up Michael's entire career. Like, there's something about it that feels like there's more finesse that could happen here that you could get what you want for Eugene. I'm not saying don't blow it up because of protecting Michael. I'm saying it for exactly what you said, which was you don't want to let all these people out of prison you know who who did rightfully belong there and and you know needed to stay in there so that people don't get hurt i think there needs to be more finesse there like i hope they don't come at it and just hatch it the shit out of it i hope this is like a scalpel when lee comes to talking to him and manages to remind us of the connections of what michael's did what michael's choices were and how that affected eugene remind the audience like that's a very nice bookend but i really i, I want some precision in the way this happens i don't want her to come in like a wrecking ball with him because it's too it's too much for me to to do it that way it's it it kind of undermines the entire series for me actually if she comes in and just is like blows up everything his, his life is already pretty blown you know i mean he's not he's not a judge again the idea that like this ruins his career his career is ruined already there is no this deeper than his career it's his honor it's 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 the who we are versus what who we want to be i don't think There's olivia lets this happen i i just don't i don't i mean doesn't this blow up her entire thing how does olivia even come into the story if michael and all of his court cases and everything are now looked at i mean this is exactly what she didn't want unless olivia is going to be in that courtroom she at least says it when she's talking to rawl a couple episodes ago she says i don't even need to prove it i just need to say it in front of a fucking television camera that's all i need to do I don't even need to prove say it. Say for the listeners what you're talking about. Prove and say what in front of a so television when, camera. When, when she brings this and she blackmails ADA Rawl and, and to get the lower plea bargain, the negligent homicide. When you homicide, say she, you mean Lee. When Lee is in the hallway with the ADA, she says, I know things that will blow up the entire system, will call into everything, every case that Michael tried into question and open it up for appeal. Rawl says, you can prove this? And she says, I don't need to, Lee says, I don't need to prove it. I just need to go say it in front of a press television camera. And that would be enough. And she's 100% correct. So unless Olivia is going to have a sniper in the courtroom and stop Lee before she opens her mouth, she just needs to say it on the record in front of a a court-packed a packed courthouse where there are press, I'm sure, taking notes in the gallery and the jury and the judge. 
all she does all she needs to do is say it out loud and and she doesn't need she never needs to prove it because it will all come down we don't have time we have one episode oh, left. I don't think it will see any of it. I think I think the match would just be lit and thrown, and she uh-huh. and it would all burn down. And I don't think we see any consequences from it. I think we just get the headcanon of oh my god, what what would have spiraled out of that happening? I kind of secretly want her to. <laughs> I know you do. I'm just trying to think of if is that it feels is that like a karmic good... justice. Get to your story roots, though. Get to how narratives work. Get to, like, where we're at. Like, what are we at a redemption point for Michael, or are we still pounding nails into the coffin? Like, where are we? It's not about we? Michael's redemption. It's, it's, it's more about... Well, some of it was, right? Where he was trying to say, I'm not going to do any more damage. It's the like, crossroads of only one can survive, Eugene or Michael's honor. Eugene's life or Michael's honor. You have to to choose that's lee's decision frame it that way narratively lee tosses this this molotov cocktail it destroys michael's honor immediately and sets in motion something we'll never see happen on camera but it saves eugene life eugene's life so at the end of the day you have to choose your adventure or do you want to see eugene's story finish out or do you want to see michael's stories finish out in a pleasant way there's something narratively very attractive there in a final episode to make one or the other have to happen all right you got to back up though michael's court life falling apart and all of his decisions is not the other side of the teeter-totter to setting Eugene free. So we can we can sit here and and we can we can have Lee take down Michael completely, but that does not set Eugene free. Those facts of what Michael did in that courtroom does not negate what Eugene did. It goes towards Lee's narrative of the system failed. Michael's Michael's corruption led to Carlo getting off when he was very guilty. Yeah, no, we all know what happened. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but that would all come saying. out though. I'm I'm, I'm making the narrative never... that it is one or the other. Okay, but if you're on, but if you're in a courtroom, right? Like there is no, like, there is no decision. It's guilty or innocent. There is no decision that's guilty, but he had his reasons. Well, like, she that's, can make, not a well reason, that's not a that's not an answer. That's, that, and, that's and, not no, something of course they not. can come back she, with. No, she would have to make some kind of self-defense-y kind of thing. Or she would oh, have geez. to sh- she would have to make the argument of he didn't do it. That none of the witnesses that they have that they have provided, they can give you 15 eyewitnesses unless they play the tape of him doing it. Look at these people. Look at who they're putting on. You're going to believe the prosecutor who's part of this Desiato corruption right. crime sting. The, the cop who killed himself after trying to shoot Eugene and did shoot him how many times? The, the mob wife who testified to you? The, nothing here. All That's that's the, the genius of the legal system is it just a little doubt is enough to get not get not guilty or it should be. So you get one person on that jury that says none of this adds up. This prosecution is corrupt. That judge is corrupt. The cops are corrupt. How do I know that this is the kid who did it? I don't I don't know that for sure. That is reasonable doubt. That is that is acquittal. I don't know if that works for our finale. I don't know how that flies. Like, I want it. I don't know that it does either, but that's the way it looks. Okay. But I, all right, let's get to just the question of what Lee is asking to Michael. Do you think he should get on the stand and lie and say he did not see Eugene there and it wasn't him? No. No. Okay. No, because... Even though this is the whole, like, you're trying to right the wrong and morally it's more right to let Eugene 
move forward with his life because he did get caught up in this bullshit. I got to tell you, all things being equal, Michael has been actually pretty unmoved by any of the Jones's plight. This was another aspect. I agree of, with you. He's with pretty the fucking cold of that towards... Beginning, no, the beginning part. The beginning part, he actually, with the look around the corner eyes, that was the mom. But but was that because he was because uh, of the mob or because he was annoyed that the cop lied? Oh, yeah. I don't think I don't I'm not saying he was looking out for the mom. I'm just saying he wanted to try to, you know, figure out the case. I haven't seen any remorse from Michael about the Jones family being blown up or Kofi being killed in prison or Eugene now being on trial, cleaning up the mess that Michael caused. I have seen no remorse from Michael about that. Michael's entire remorse is only about Adam and how his decisions led to Adam's death. There's been zero remorse, in fact, from Michael about anything that the Jones family has been put put through, which maybe he doesn't owe it to the J- Jones's family. I feel like he does owe it to the Jones's family a little bit because we're saying that deep down he is this honorable man. Deep down he is a good person who was forced into do bad things, or or at least that's the defense of Michael. If that is truly who he is, there should be a little bit of remorse for what the Jones family has been through. Some of which is at Michael's hands and blood is on his hands for it. Michael has taken no, we haven't even seen a little bit of reflection about what the Jones family has been through, what Eugene's family has been through. Well, So then I could see where maybe that moment has to happen a little bit in order for him to make this decision about whether or not he would lie on the stand for Eugene, because some of that has to come to roost. Like he, we cannot just see him on the stand with zero thought process behind this and just say, whatever for me, like I have to see something, even if it's just the littlest bit of conversation with Lee, or I don't know what there needs to be something else that says to me, Okay, yes, we're going to go ahead and connect you to and like plug you in to the whole Jones situation. And now you need to feel remorse for that. You need what what is to make it right when it comes to the Jones family? That is to at least let one of their family members be able to live out their life, you know, and not die um, at, at in, because of a situation that they really had nothing to do with. I could see that. I don't know. I'm, ooh, I'm a little, I'm struggling because having only one episode left, everything you're talking about is way too freaking dense for what we have left. 100%. So it's like, if we have to come to some conclusions with these people and everything you're saying is great if we had another season or if we were only midway through or something, but God, with one episode left, how much can they realistically bite off and be able to do this? This is me just spinning theories based on the only... This is purely based on the ammo, the only ammo that I am aware that Lee has in her pocket, which Mm -hmm. becomes available to use. Like, you play video games, you can't use all of your tools all the time. They only come up in certain situations. Michael being on the stand reopens that toolbox for Lee to expose what she knows about Michael as as ammo. What does she get from it? I don't know, but what I'm spinning here what we spent the last 10 minutes of spitting about all comes about as a possibility if michael gets on the stand in which otherwise in the courtroom she doesn't have that ability to do there's no one else that allows her the opening because of the rules of what you can ask a witness about and what you can ask them especially on cross-examination there are specific rules about what you can and cannot ask them about michael being on the stand allows her to bring this up in a way that doesn't get closed off to her 
if Michael is going to take the stand and whatever decision he makes, which I think he's going to lie then, then I really want Lee to show the sophisticated highbrow lawyer she can be and exact the information she needs like a surgeon. I do not want her to come in screaming at him, wrecking ball style, jilted lover style, and and just just massacre the situation. Like I don't want that. I, I want her to show her skill set as a lawyer and be able to pull out exactly these pieces of information, weave it together and get Eugene out of there. I don't know if that's asking too much or if that's exactly the way Lee will play it because she is a sophisticated lady at the end of the day. The stuff we see her saying behind the scenes where she gets really mad and upset and more emotional and all that stuff, that's all happening outside of the courtroom. But in the courtroom, she has been someone and and reputation wise has been right and, and been very exacting in the way that she handles everything. So. I will be sad if she allows any other crap to come in with her approach with Michael, because I really want it to be slick and smart and professional. Let's move on to another lady on the show who thinks she's a boss. Let's take a listen. (laughs) Is Jimmy meeting us at the courthouse? He's not coming. He should be there. I told him not to. Why? If we can't be united in private, I have no interest in faking it in public. He's the head of this family. Well, he shouldn't be. Today is about the family who are with us. And I don't want to talk about those who aren't. Were you surprised that she was so bold here about this? This is her and her father have had conversations around her marriage so far that we've seen. They've talked about the family and the legacy of the Contis. And if you, dad, were running the family still, this is next level bold that we hadn't seen from her before saying words out loud to her father or to anyone that we hadn't heard her say before. I think this goes back to our conversation last week about how she has zero interest in being a co-captain. She has her eyes on the prize here, and and she feels like she can handle this all by herself. She doesn't want him around. She's not, she's over Jimmy completely. I thought it was bold. I mean, it, it 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 didn't really seem right that Jimmy wouldn't be in the courtroom. It really didn't. It didn't make sense to me a lot. So, but I but I know we had to have this whole other conversation with Jimmy and Michael going on over here. Damn, I don't know. Did it make sense to you that Jimmy would listen to her and not show up? I don't think he was going to go anyway. He's doing this groundbreaking ceremony. So it didn't feel off to me. In the same way, it didn't really feel off to me that Michael didn't go either. Yes, there there's an aspect to it where you would expect them to go. And, and Senator Grandma says, well, we'll represent Adam. And I don't think she was throwing shade at Michael when she said that either. I don't either. I think that I think that that everybody was being respectful towards Michael's situation. There, Ripping but... scabs off and doesn't yeah, want to be in yeah. there for the trial. And even more so than for Michael. Carlo's not dead. I'm so used to seeing Jimmy and Gina together in the courtroom from all of the scenes that we've seen them. Maybe that's why it just seemed like Wow, it just seems weird. Even if they both were there, but they were like sitting in different areas or something, it kind of it, it seemed like I'm surprised that Jimmy was just like hands off about Think it. Think about what you just said, though, now and now replace the fact that it was Gina sitting next to her father, though, after mm-hmm. just telling her father in the car that Jimmy shouldn't be the head of the family, which let's read body language here. 
he was not for that. The he dad was, was not, not for about that. it. He looked no. very, very uneasy at that at that idea. Yeah, I did not feel like he was willing to hand the crown over to Gina at all. Or, and I think that was also the assumption that he was making. But Gina, to her credit, doesn't say I should be the head of the family. So she, you could take it, was saying that you, Dad, should be the head of the family again. Whatever the whatever it was, he took it in a way that I could only describe as uneasy. Especially when she reaches out her hand and puts it on his lap and is on his knee, and he's he's looking at her like, uh, I'm not co-signing anything you're saying in this car right now. Because remember that conversation that he had with Jimmy in the hallway for all of his problems with who Jimmy is as a thug and gangster and man, Jimmy has made Carmine very rich and Carmine is is aware of that and may not feel like he himself can do the same things Jimmy is doing financially to make him money and maybe even has even less feeling that his daughter could do it in a way that Jimmy could, right? This is the businessman versus the blunt object. He knows his daughter. This is the conversation why he said not to get a divorce and to hold on and to squeeze and hold on to her marriage in the bedroom. Gina is like him, a blunt object, and Jimmy, like their mother, is not and there's a yin and yang there that you need carmine is a smart enough guy to know that two blunt objects running the family may increase their power but certainly or not necessarily is going to increase their money mm, okay now the question has to be at the end of this episode fast forward and we know that jimmy is now called off the baxter district project presumably because of the calabri's involvement fia's admission to jimmy at the end that he uh that she talked very calmly mentions that she talked to a u.s attorney that the that the government is watching everything jimmy is doing that they know he's in business with the calabri's and so that jimmy should stop whatever he's doing with the calabri's jimmy takes that advice um immediately calls off the project that feels like the kind of thing that maybe does get carmine on board with removing jimmy as the head of the family i could see that too yeah absolutely because i mean god he's gonna have to deal with the calabres you know like i mean that's it's not like one of those things where it's like oh oh cool no big deal like, no, fallout all over the place. Right. And we said this when he took the meeting, right? Carmine set up the meeting with the Calabries, knowing that he had to take a deal with the Calabries the second he stepped into that meeting. Carmine knew what he was doing when the old man are talking in Italian to each other. It was a done deal the second that meeting was set and the second that Jimmy stepped into that room, he had to get into bed with the Calabries. So now he's called it off. I mean, insults. Talk about insults as being a, a reason for action. These these are not people you can insult without consequences. Talk about consequences of actions. Jimmy pulling out of the deal, out of the deal with the Calabries, canceling the Baxter District. Think about think to that breakfast. We need this land, Jimmy. You know the the whole breakfast where they're they're hassling Jimmy about what he's doing in order to secure the land deal across from the French Quarter. All of that, this is this is going not going to be digested well by Gina Carmine or anyone in the family. No, I, I think I think that this is a huge freaking mess. And I, I mean, were you surprised that he was so willing to walk away from the Bas Baxter district? I think he took G I think he took Fia's words very much to heart. And we're doing this all out of order. Yeah, we are, but it's fine. You have to get to the advice that 
Michael says, and it's, he's saying it kind of as it applies to himself, but watch the scene. He's giving the advice to Jimmy when he says to him, sometimes there's a gun at your head and you don't even know it. That is in his mind when he's then later having this conversation with Fia that I'm conveniently calling three truths and a lie. And she <laughs> says that he is that the that the government is watching him. I think it clicked for Jimmy. Michael's advice rumbling around in his brain. There's this gun to his head that he didn't even know it was there. Fia filled in the blank and sketched out where that gun is pointed. It's pointed at his deal with the Calabries in the Baxter district. So no, because Jimmy is a good businessman. He is a smart <laughs> businessman, not businessman. <laughs> I know it's your favorite little mechanism that I do. It's pretty. Well, okay. So let me, let me ask you this though. So do you think that while Michael's, you know, message might've been rattling in his head, does he make any connection between this U.S. attorney talking to Fia and Michael's sudden reappearance and, uh, you know, willingness to help in the Baxter household and whatnot. Like, are, are we is he going to make that connection and say, all right, Michael, so tell us all about the U.S. attorney that you're obviously working with? I think he'd be stupid not to. And I think the show would be doing a disservice to the character to not make that question or have him raise that question to Michael next episode. He's got to, right? I mean, he's got, got to. to. He's too smart. Yes. He, the show has made him too smart to not make that connection. Like Carlo, the Fredo of the family, doesn't make that connection. But Jimmy has to make that connection to Michael and the U.S. attorney. And to the comment of when you said there sometimes there's a gun to your head that you don't even know is there. Might you have been talking about this? <laughs> sir, kind sir, might you have been talking about this? Let's right. back up. Let's get all into Jimmy and Michael because this is... We're going to get all up into Jimmy and Michael's business right now. First, we got to start off. When Jimmy Baxter says, do you want to go for a ride? The answer is always no. No, Jimmy, I would not like to go for a ride. <laughs> now, you may not be able to give that answer, but that should be what goes off in your brain. Never get into a car with Jimmy Baxter. Nothing good ever comes from that. That's, that's just... <laughs> That's just a, 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 just a good life lesson, people. Just a good life lesson that we'd all do well and live longer to adopt. Does Jimmy's whole appeal slash job pitch to bring Michael into the family's business, did that surprise you? Is it that Jimmy is just so desperate for someone to trust, just like Thea is, that they have both turned to Michael as that person? He still has some strings with Michael. He wants somebody who he can have some amount of, like, messing around with does that make sense like he's not just gonna hire on like any old thug like he does want somebody who's smart and educated and can like keep him on the right side of the law and like see things for what they are but also they have this history and so there's something there about that that he can keep leaning on and pulling on that's that's a huge theme and especially in this episode of like let's use all our past history to like yank strings on people like this goes across the board mutual assured destruction is a very real concept uh, that or, is... or not even i mean lee's not mutual destruction whatever like she doesn't care but based on their history she knows what strings to pull you know like there's stuff there that's like every single person Person has something going on where they can yank on some old memory and and manipulate the person so i mean i get why jimmy wants michael to be a part of this and you know you keep your enemies close right 
Uh, yeah, I guess. I, I think that's right, though. And, and this is a credit to, to Michael Stuhlberg, who plays Jimmy, that you never know. Is he being sincere? Is it is it keep your enemies close? Or is it of all of the people in my life, you, even, even despite our past relationship, are still the most stand-up guy I know and that I can trust? Fia and Jimmy are so much alike in so many ways that I think there is narratively a nice parallel to the both of them reaching out to Michael as this, I have no one in my life I can trust, so I'm turning to you to put my trust into you. I, I think there's something there. I think narratively there's a nice parallel there for these two. Remember remember the first episode before the time jump? You and I are the same, and Gina and Carlo are psychopathic bloodless people. We are the same. And so both of them being drawn to some aspect of Michael that says trustworthy feels right to me. I love this story, and, and so I'm, I'm not going to pick it apart or anything, but, but I will say... Given how long Jimmy has worked in his business and lived where he lives and has supposedly, again, I'm I'm going back to the like, we've been told you have this big organization you're in charge of. Where are the people? I really find it hard to believe that Michael is his best choice. Well, he's furloughed his man of 14 years. He's furloughed him. That's what we're calling it now. Furloughed. <laughs> <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Like, like. Come on, you live in the same place for this long. You run all these businesses. You, you really, I'm really supposed to believe the only guy you can go to is Michael. Does it make it any more believable, though? And we learned this in Three Truths and a Lie in this episode that he inherited the mafia business from Carmine. So, is it possible? As a, as a, I agree with you. Where are the people in his organization? As a devil's advocate to that, though. All of the people, when Jimmy looks at them, they're all Carmine people or they're all Gina people, as, as it maybe turned out Frankie was. He has no of his own people. You're telling me that? But that's kind of ridiculous to think about. That, like, somehow he's managed to make zero connections with anybody this whole time, his entire career, which is like the, which is probably 20 plus years. Zero connections. I'll go with it because that's what they're telling us. They're telling us, yep, he never, 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 never had a friend. Never, never, never had anyone before he met Gina. He never had anybody that he could trust. They're telling us that, so I'll go with it. But I... I'm kind of cocking my head like, I don't know. He's a pretty, you know, he's a pretty good negotiator and pretty good talker. He has no friends. No, Let me nobody. add a wrinkle into it. Think back to this first season. He thinks Frankie is his guy. Think, Remember how revelatory it was for him and for us when it came out that Gina was regularly talking to the men behind his back, including Frankie, and they were doing what she wanted without consulting with him throw that wrinkle in there because he would have said Frankie was his guy until he realized that Gina was maybe pulling the strings <laughs> uh, more than more than Jimmy was. So maybe right. Jimmy does look around and say, I, I don't know any of these fucking people. Whereas Michael is a known quantity. He knows Michael has no attachments to anyone in his family other than what he and Gina know, but they both know that equally. And Gina mm -hmm. has such disgust and hatred in his heart, in her heart. She would never go to Michael. And I mean, just look at how Carlo reacts when Michael tells him that Jimmy offered him a job. He looks like he just sucked on the lemon when he says, oh, is that right? That's exactly how Gina is going to react, if not worse. I mean, she's, she's going to throw in some bad words on top 
top of it, maybe throw something, you know? So Michael really is this, as far as Jimmy can determine unblemished uncontrolled because he would have said he would have swore to you up and down a year ago frankie was that guy was that person he could put his life in in his hands but that turned out not to be true so when you look back and if, if frankie a fellow scott was was corrupted by gina and the conti family then michael maybe really is all he has in real life, I think you have people before you've met the Contis. Well, I think you, have you other get people. along with people, though. You're, you're good at making <laughs> friends. I am only going on what they tell me. What they tell me is it sounds like the Baxters must have had a pretty isolated life for whatever, you know, they kind of stay in their ivory tower and they don't really go out there. And he isn't out there mucking it up with all these people. There was an awful lot of people at his birthday party, but apparently none of those people are trustworthy or friends. I have to believe them when they say that. And so I will. It, but but as an audience member, it's it's fair to go like, huh, okay, well, all right. He's he really prides himself on these relationships that he built in order to become the oyster king of all of the New Orleans, right? But again, no relationships in reality. To be fair, there are a lot of people in this world that if you asked them if we were friends, they would say a hundred percent yes. And if you asked me, I, I would tell you that they were nothing more than an acquaintance. There are many relationships out there. It's, it's, a, it's a part of my job. I have relationships with hundreds of people that would swear we're friends and I can barely remember their name. You know, it's a little bit of a work hazard. Who is a friend in, in a real way versus just someone that you maybe put on a show with? Especially when your life and trusting your life and your family's life in their hands. It's a very narrow, narrow group of people. I'm going to keep asking questions because I think it's fair as an audience member to say, you know, okay, th this is not supposed to be like on a desert island or on another planet or or in the year 3000. This is supposed to be relatable. This is supposed to be right now, right? You know, we, we would all have some touchstone to some of the stuff that is gone on in this story, whether it's the parent-child relationship, whatever it is, right? So if you're going to do that and you're telling me this is grounded in reality, then sometimes, though, I'm being asked to step way outside and say, okay, these people lived here forever. He knows nobody that he can trust. Zero people. Zero. He has to go to the kid's dad who killed his son. That's the best he's got. Okay, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to say, then that's, then that's the way it is because that's what they're telling me. I don't think that's as crazy as you think it is, given I'm the not way they. I'm it's crazy. I'm just saying that this is what they've told me. Well, given the way they've set up this show and what they have shown us and taught us about these people, I, 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 I listen to you say that and I'm like, yeah, that kind of tracks for me. Maybe I'm just naive. <laughs> maybe, maybe I just want to believe it because I like Jimmy and I like Michael and I like them together. And I would so watch a, uh, like a, like a Miami Vice esque show of Jimmy. <laughs> Me and Michael fighting crime. <laughs> they're, they're more fighting like the, and the, causing crime. They're like you know. the odd couple, right? Total yeah. Felix da, 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 and Oscar. <laughs> I'm not even sure which is Felix and which is Oscar. I was about to say the same thing. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure. Not There's, even sure. Except maybe it's like a body in the living room instead of like a ring on like not using a coaster. Right. Like, it's Jimmy! always chips. Remember? You left... Oscar used to like throw the chips bag. Like, yeah. like Remember in the beginning there was like a, like a chips bag situation? Jimmy, there's a dead Scott on the floor. <laughs> Da, 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 da. Exactly. Anyway, uh, Michael asked a question that a lot of people, including us, have been asking for since the end of last season. Why didn't Jimmy tell Fia? He's so concerned about Fia choosing Michael over him, 
even in this episode when he's looking at the picture, look at his face darken into some combination of anger and sadness when he finds the picture of Michael's phone of baby Rocco and, and Michael on it. Look, go look at his face. All of that taken into it. He never told Fia the truth about Michael and Adam. The why. Let's take a listen. By the time we learned she was pregnant, she'd already been through so much. I want to protect her memory of Adam. By doing so, you also protected me. Thank you. I did it for her. But, uh, I am curious. You didn't tell her about the things I've done? I always had such a strong belief of right and wrong, and... I just don't want to be the judge about that anymore. How did this hit you? I feel like we kind of guessed this was the reasoning of the the idea of protecting the memory of Adam, because what good does it come of it to tell her the truth when you have the baby at that point? But did that feel right to you? Did that explanation feel right to you, given how long we've kind of asked that question? It made complete sense to me, especially when he started talking about like when we found out she was pregnant, you know, this this was already happening. Like, I really I felt like we were so close to getting to the stuff that we had talked about of like what happened during that time? Like, you know, what were people's reactions to her being pregnant? Like, is the fact that she's, you know, at odds with Jimmy because he maybe didn't want her to keep the baby like all that. We were getting so close to getting to know what happened right then that I was like salivating like a dog over that portion because I was like, please, Jimmy, please say more. Please tell us what happened. Please, please. Because I thought we were going to get more answers as to like why the whole family fractured, you know, and specifically Fia and Jimmy. Like I thought we were going to really get something right then, but I was, I was okay with what he was saying about how, you know, this just, it was all just too much, you know, she had been through so much. I really, I agree with you. It's the one thing that I feel like we're not going to get an answer to next week that really I want to, because, because you had such a good theory about what would have caused, again, from that flashback of you and I are the same when they're at the docks, when they, when she can't go through with the vigil and then he meets her down by the water, that conversation then to jump forward a year and then to be so far from each other. It bothers me. That's the one thing. Honestly, it's the one thing that I know we're not going to get an answer on that really bothers me. And even if he had said here, he'd be like, I even told her not to take the keep the baby or something like that would have shed light on it. But there was a, no, they took us right to the edge and they edge lord us. <laughs> lorded us no, and I, then, I'm uh, serious when I say I was like salivating. I was like, come on, say it. Tell us why. Tell us what happened. Give it like bring us to that moment because it was, you know, it was so far away from us. Like we it was it was one of the things that they do off off camera. And and we deal with it. We say, okay, that's just not something we're going to ever find out anything about. But damn, I mean, th- that that one, because it sticks with us so much right now, you know, the reason why they can't talk to each other, the reason why they can't come back to each other, we don't know. We don't know why. And it's like, uh, I mean, to be fair, Fia over the time, over the season has been obviously privy to a lot more you know and so now we can get it but we have to go back to remember we started this season with them with the the rift 
don't take what happened this season and say, see, it was the baptism. It was the, it was all these different things that that's why Fia and her dad are in a bad place. No, they were in a bad place at the beginning well, of the season. Well, at the beginning of season, at, at beginning of episode two, which is the year jump, they're very much on the same side of each other in episode one, which mm-hmm. is right after Adam's death. So what happened in that year that caused them to go from as close to she, she, it's Fia who's saying, you and I are the same and Carlo and mom are different. We're on the same team. What happened in that year that showed Fia, she and her father, in fact, were not the same person? Was it that maybe she did learn more about the family's activities maybe she was sheltered up until that point and and then started to see them in the same way olivia last week showing pictures of all of the crimes of the baxter family forced fia's eyes open maybe that year was a bit of that maybe it didn't have anything to do with whether or not to keep the baby maybe it was more just her eyes being opened to who her father was and is more like gina and carlo than she thought he was right because think back to the story she would always tell adam about her father her her version of her father is i know you've heard about the baxter family i know you probably think something about us but my father started from the bottom made himself was the oyster king of of new orleans like that's her story her narrative for her father was hard-working businessman not bloodthirsty gangster maybe it wasn't about him forcing her or, or suggesting she not keep the baby or whatever maybe it was seeing him more as the bloodthirsty gangster in that year and less like who she thought he was you know maybe that was the ref but we're not going to find out they're not going to tell us because this, <laughs> like this, we could talk about it all day long this yeah. is where you're 100 right this is where they would have told us it would have been inserted it perfectly seems in here so it seems so ripe i was like oh then this is so perfect because they're alone and we're on this like kind of very isolated place and i was like oh damn this by is the happening. time she we find out she was pregnant already and yes, she found out that yes. i had killed all these fucking people yes. <laughs> we couldn't tell her you know i wanted to break like just one more sentence one more clause of a sentence you could have answered our question not why god why (laughs) uh also obviously we talked about it a lot already but again this is where it comes out that michael has had this life self-awareness actualization realization that he doesn't want to be the judge of right and wrong anymore which character development wise and story wise and show theme wise i think is extremely important to hold on to i cannot bold underline italicize that concept more than we already have but there it is hold on to it because i think it's important for understanding the pathos and ethos of the show uh, we get into this question. Th- this conversation goes on. We're going to do these all kind of in segments. This conversation goes on to where Michael asks Jimmy if he thinks he's done enough to earn a second chance. And Mike- and Jimmy, Jimmy's pretty straightforward. He says, I don't know, but the birth of baby Rocco makes me feel like maybe this is a time for things to start anew, for, for second chances to be had, which... I think is interesting. Let's listen to the job offer clip. This is really where he offers Michael the actual job to join the family. And there, there's, there's all sorts of mixing of family together with job and, and blending of lines and stuff. But it's an interesting conversation. Let's take a listen. You thought you were without a family. It's not true anymore. We're connected to one another. We should embrace that. I recently furloughed my right-hand man of 14 years. 
find myself wanting for wisdom. Someone smart, educated, someone I can trust. Put my family's best interests ahead of his own. And you think that could be you? I've committed my share of sins. I'm not looking to commit more. No one's asking you to. That's the whole point. This is a new chapter for our family, a completely legitimate enterprise, completely. I could use a mind like yours, lawyer, judge. I've been disbarred. I can't take this from you. I like when he points to his head and says, they can't take that away from you. He's right. I, I, I roll my eyes a little bit when he says, this is completely <laughs> legitimate. Buddy, you're funding this with drug money. And by the way, all manner of evil will pass through this city. Specifically the sex trafficking and all that. That's the part that was like, ah, like where are you okay with that? Like humans selling to other humans. I was like, God, Carmen, stop. I felt like this was supposed to be very empowering in many ways to Michael. You know, him saying, you know, they can't take away what's in here and all that. It, it did give an idea of what Michael could do with his life, how he could have a second act in doing some sort of consulting or something, despite the fact that he would not be, you know, an actual lawyer or, or judge or anything like that. But he would still have the knowledge of the law that could be very useful for other people on the up and up in a good way. So I was like, OK, that I, I liked that it shed a little bit of hope and and light to an area that seemed dismal, like all you were ever going to be able to do was you know work at the butcher shop or whatever like no like you still have this background they can't take that away from you like come on like open your eyes think bigger and and that that actually felt like i was like yeah okay like jimmy's you know kind of being given some good advice here to to michael jimmy that clip goes on to say he looks out at the baxter district and he says this is legacy I'm building something here that will outlast us all as part of the pitch and and saying to Michael, you could be a part of a thing that we can build that will outlast us all. Does that kind of thing resonate with you? Or do you believe in legacy building? I know this is, this is a thing for some people, this idea of, I want to leave a mark on the world that, that stands for something and outlasts my time on earth. Does, does that resonate with you? Because it doesn't with everyone, but I'm curious if that, if that is, uh, appealing to you given that we only have this episode and the next episode left i will let our listeners in on a little bit more about my life at the beginning of my life as an adult i would not have cared at all about a legacy i would not have told you that it mattered to me i don't need to be the person who has my name on something or whatever it, it wouldn't have mattered to me i would have been very satisfied with raising a family having a career and being just comfortably successful that would have been okay with me I have three special needs kids. My eldest is deafblind. When that life started, that I gave birth to these kiddos and, and now I was, I was on a different mission, then I think that my legacy desire comes from a place of wanting to make sure that, that the whole world is better set up for my own children. And in that, I'm helping set up a better world for many, many, many more people than them. For me, like I spent 11 years on the board of trustees at School for the Blind in Austin here in Texas. And there's a gigantic plaque with my name on it 
on the wall when you first walk in. The thing for me now, like I have great pride in that, not because of the plaque being thing like the the legacy, because people say things like, oh, you know, I put my name on this building or whatever. But but the work that I did there during that time, the the hard work that I put into helping shape, you know, what was going on for those for the kids who were there and the kids across the state and across the world, because, you know, we were one of the biggest schools for deaf, blind and blind students. So for me, I think that the concept of legacy has changed quite a bit. I think I would actually align it more with like purpose and wanting to leave a mark on the world, wanting to change something for the better. It doesn't necessarily have to have my name on it to be a legacy as much as just knowing that that maybe my work, you know, um, legislatively and and with families and stuff like that, that I made the world a better place individual by individual or or by changing a law or by adding, you know, a bill for Congress to, to think about those types of things. Like th- that's the type of work I do when I'm not podcasting. And so for me, I would never sit down and say like, I need to have a legacy. I need this because I I can't stand the idea of, of dying. And then I just was erased from the planet and I, no one will ever remember I lived. It's not that it's more of this. I have the power and I have the ability. I have the talents and the skills to make a difference for a group of people who are very vulnerable and need it, I will act on that. And because of that, I will create a legacy that I already have. Like, I mean, I can look up my own name and the amount of things that I have been a part of, I'm so proud of. I'm I'm already changing, you know, people's lives in that regard. And I know that sounds kind of like arrogant or conceited or whatever, but, but I, you know, I talk to families all the time who say, I used your lessons, you know, or, or my intervener learned something um, because of things that, that you have like shared about things that work for your family. I know that's long winded, but again, we only have one episode left. So (laughs) if I don't share, a little with our listeners. I, I never will. So I guess that's where I'm at. And I, and I, do you feel like legacy has to mean like, you know, you have a company or you have, you know, a park bench with your name on it or something like what does legacy mean for you? It's changed. I, I think if you I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit the opposite. I think if you would have asked me when I was younger, I would have said it was very important that I left behind some kind of legacy, some kind of thing with my name on it, something I could point to and say, I did that. I think as I've gotten older, I think really actually when I became a father, I shifted all of my thoughts on tangible legacy into how I'm raising Tom essentially trying to make him my legacy and not that I need him to do X, Y, or Z, but more that he is just the better version of me that he gets right. All of the multitude of things I've gotten wrong that I can pass on the lessons of the things I've done right. And the things I've done wrong and make his life easier, make him not have to repeat all of the mistakes that I had to go through to have an outlook on life that is more correct on how life actually is versus what I had to go through. So I I think I shifted from the idea of legacy had to be something very tangible to something much more intangible, much harder to place, but feels right in my gut that that's the legacy I'm intended to make. Um, I, 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 much like Lee, am a very jaded lawyer. 
I have spent a long time helping rich businesses get richer. So that whole aspect of my life has really changed in a real 180 kind of way. So I find the joy in my life, the the things that get me excited, that make me feel like I'm doing something right are all much more intangible, uh, much more wrapped up in, in fatherhood and being a partner and, and, and that kind of thing versus a deal that has my name on it or, or anything like that. I think what we're both saying and what I feel like I can even see with like our characters in the show is that we've gone from, you know, perhaps this bigger concept of legacy to like touching individual lives and really wanting to make a difference for individual people in our lives. For us, it's our kids. You know, we we want to make their lives better. And because of that, and I know you do more than what you're saying in terms of like you coach and you encourage other kids and you you do more in terms of your community and volunteering and using your legal know-how in order to help nonprofits and stuff like that. Like there's a lot more that I know that you're doing that you're not giving yourself enough credit for that what I'm hearing both of us say is as you get a little older maybe you realize like you know you you leave a legacy by the people like our Coco story right by those who remember you and those I was going to bring up Coco but I feel like I had talked about it too much I was going to say Coco (laughs) I'm much more I I know because that one that one hurt gets your heart I know I don't I don't want I don't want to make us have get all teary openly weep but yeah but the idea of You will you will be remembered. You will have legacy as long as there's someone there that remembers you very much resonates with me. And and that's definitely where I have shifted. And that's not about names on buildings. That's people in your life that remember you long after you're gone. Right. And I and I want to be so clear about the thing I said, like, you know, all the work that I'm doing, it's because it's this small little group of people who just have very little representation and and there's just very little. No. And so and and, and in that, though, because it's such a small group, it is actually a very individual effort. You know, I mean, I'm talking individually with families and and trying to help individual families. And it's such a difference, right? It's tangible, but also intangible. I mean, what the work you've done is tangible. Just make them feel better, you know? Right. A lot of kids will go to that school and maybe not know your name, but they're getting the education and doors have been opened in part because of the work you did, which is the intangible. They'll never know to Mm -hmm. thank you, but you did affect their lives. That's intangible. But then there are the tangible the families that you talk to on the phone all the time, your own kids who benefit from that work. Those are those are tangible things that you do get to touch and resonate with. So I had, you know, a kid, We ha- I had a kid that I, a coach of, who just placed seventh in the country today in the national championships. He's the seventh fastest runner in the country. Like, am I, her, am I her main coach? No, but did I have a little bit of something? I hope I did. I hope some advice that I gave her along the way mattered and made a difference you know a kid that i used to coach in taekwondo fought uh a fought and won several rounds against the netherlands and spain earlier today literally fighting That's across so the world crazy. like I, you know i haven't coached him in in years now but i was i was a part of his training early on i i like to think i share a little bit in that and that's some kind of intangible thing that maybe something i did went a long way i i think legacy in general for the most part 
has a real intangible quality that's just built in, right? It's there's something about it that's like reputation wise, or that's, you know, it's just it's this feeling you get when you hear a last name or this feeling you get when you hear, you know, of the work that someone's done that that you really feel like, wow, like that mattered, you know, it really mattered. And I love what you're saying. And I'm so glad that you're you're letting our listeners know, like, no, like you, you have a bunch of stuff that you do that that again, it's not it doesn't seem like this big fanfare moment because you're not the guy at the end like i'm not the one who's going to be seeing them off on uh, at the end of their careers and retirement stuff like that but i am the one that was standing on the stage for graduation you know for when they were young and they were just starting out and same with you like you know you were there when they were just putting on their little taekwondo outfits and everything and you were getting them excited and encouraging them and letting them fall in love with it so there's so many different steps to creating a legacy that I think are easily overlooked, I guess. And and people don't really stop and think about it unless it's like, oh, well, I was the president of the United States or I, you know, I like I or or the worst, the worst to me is when people consider legacy really just to be a bank account. That one really bugs me because I'm like, man, yeah, I mean, it's awesome that people earn tons and tons of money. That's amazing. But dang, you, you want it. It's like, please do good with that. Please help actual people with that. Not, the legacy can't just be the size of the bank account. Well, I mean, it's a, it's an unintentional, but another wonderful segue into the next part of of Jimmy and Michael's very special day Maybe out together. It wasn't unintentional. <laughs> uh, Michael takes offense that Jimmy would hire him or want to hire him for his intellect and downplay then the Calabri's investments in and in, in effect on his business and this idea that it's going to be something totally legitimate. That's where this clip on. Uh, this clip picks up on the idea of who we are. I have no interest in what the Calabri family does. That is not who I am. There's a world of difference between who we are and who we want to be. What if the true test of family isn't loyalty but sacrifice. If I join you, if I become part of your family, I fear the sacrifices I would have to make. No one's putting a gun to you. Sometimes there's a gun to your head and you don't even know it. I included the first part of that clip because, man, that is a lesson that a lot of people need to hear and learn. The idea that there is a world of difference between who we are and who we want to be or who we think we are. Uh, Preach, Michael preach because i mean this is a guy who has lived the idea of who we are versus who we want to be i think a lot of people need to hear that and understand that and carry themselves and and conduct themselves in a way that does not comport to who they actually are but rather who they think they are 
I was curious if you did, did, did that resonate with you? I mean, we can get to the back end of it, but we, we talked a bit about the idea of a gun being to your head and maybe you don't even know it. To me, that signals advice Michael's trying to give to Jimmy without saying outright he's giving him advice. But I, I really like that first clip. I'm curious if that resonated with you or if you think Michael's just talking out of his ass and it's actually not true. I don't think he's talking out of his ass. I mean, I think that I think everything he's saying, you know, about what about what sacrifices and and, you know, what what all these choices really are and how they have these repercussions. I I mean, I think I think he's like talking it out in a way that's very reasonable and very practical. You know, for as much as Michael hasn't spilled the beans about old Olivia or anything like that, I mean, he certainly has laid plenty of hints yeah. <laughs> to to Jimmy really and Dufia. And I mean, he really has. And so, I mean, and, and, and again, if you go back to the right and wrong of things, I mean, I think that that's where it's like, because he's trying to, he's trying to look out for people in his own way. Hey, there's nothing to be gotten about the Baxters if they all just do everything legally from here on out, you know? And it's, so that way it's like he doesn't have to get them, but because they're on the up and up, you know, and that would be great. The difference between who we are and who we want to be is interesting for Michael to be saying it to Jimmy here because of Jimmy's lead into that conversation of I disavow myself from anything the Calabries might do which is what prompts Michael to say that their their business has nothing to do with who I am. But you got to think back to that conversation between Carmine and Jimmy about the little boy and the thief and I'm no thief and and <laughs> and Carmine trying to tell Jimmy that you think you're better than me, you fucking son of a bitch. You're just like me. You're a thug. Stop lying to yourself, Jimmy. I won't let you lie to yourself anymore. That's that was Carmine using a stick to hammer home who we are and who we want to be are not the same things, Jimmy. And Michael's saying it to him in a much more palatable way and and something tells me jimmy is more inclined to hear it in the way michael is saying it everything in this conversation versus maybe how carmine delivered it to him jimmy needs to understand that who he wants to be is not necessarily who he actually is and he needs to do some deep reflecting on that especially if he wants to have fia in his life which at the end of the day i think is more important to jimmy than anything else i truly do i think sincerely deeply in 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 the marrow of his bones jimmy wants his daughter to love him the way he loves her more than anything else. Maybe I'm a sap and maybe I'm naive, but I, I truly think he wants to be that. I think he wants to be someone that she loves. If he could snap his fingers and do everything as an honest business man and, and could have, you know, a, a renewed relationship with his children I think he would. I, I think he has no interest in this Conti life. It's like he was young and he had these aspirations. He made a deal with the devil. Yeah, basically. And and at the end of the day, it's like, oh, shit, I may have actually had the talent on my own to not have to do this. You know, that's the question mark again, because we never really got into Jimmy's story. 
we don't know if he is a savvy businessman or if, like Karan said, no, you're just really, you know, on the coattails of of my businesses and I grease the wheels for everything. So, no, you're a shit businessman. You don't actually have any ability to negotiate anything. And the only reason why you have anything is because of me. If that's really the truth, then I don't know if Jimmy can actually go legit and be successful. I would like to think he could. But I don't know if he can, because Carmine certainly threw the shade that, no, he's incapable. He doesn't have it. It's just that it looks like he does because I made it so easy for you. The part I had to cut out of that clip because, again, it's a very long clip. Michael talks about how in jail he had time to think about all of his or in prison. He had time to think about all of his regrets. And the thing he focused on the most was in the boathouse. When Jimmy was going to kill him, Michael stopped him to say he could that Carlo was about to be arrested and he could he could help get Carlo off. Basically, Michael prolonged his life, his own life. And had he not done that, Jimmy would have gone on thinking Michael was the one who killed Rocco. Adam would have been safe and not in the cross in in michael's crosshairs and somehow adam would still be alive if he had sacrificed that adam would still be alive which leads him to this idea of maybe the true test of family is not loyalty but sacrifice and had he sacrificed himself and not been selfish the way he's telling the story is how i took it adam would still be alive his decisions again consequences for our actions led to adam's death and i think this is michael's entire this is what the entire series is about from michael's point of view i think i think Eugene's story is a large part of what the show is about, but I think Michael's story is the majority of what this show has been about, specifically the consequences for all of Michael's actions and what they led to. And this is him realizing, had he done it differently, Adam would still be alive. Saying it out loud, and I think you're right, when you say he's talking it out, I think that's exactly what he's doing. But I also think he's also trying to offer advice here without framing it as such to Jimmy. In addition to the gun against your head that you don't see, this idea of what is joining your family going to cost me in sacrifice, which is something that Jimmy also needs to reflect on. What does being part of the Conti family and all that entails cost Jimmy in sacrifice? Because I think it, it very possibly will cost him his daughter it already has cost him his daughter it's whether it will cost him his daughter in a permanent way is what jimmy's down to now let's finish off jimmy though because this conversation they go from this conversation and and i think jimmy listens to michael when michael speaks i think he actually really listens to his word for, for all of the animosity in their relationship and and how their relationship has evolved I do think Michael is someone that Jimmy listens to his words and thinks it over. Whether or not he ultimately acts on it or changes how he behaves because of it is, is separate from the fact that I think he actually takes it into his brain. So then you get from that conversation, Fia comes, remember, fresh off of her conversation with Olivia in, in Senator Grandma's house, then watching her mother on the stand lie or what she's pretty sure is a lie. She's pretty sure her mother did not see Eugene fire the gun. So she goes to her father and asks him what I'm calling three truths and a lie. And she basically says, listen, tell me the truth. I can live with whatever the truth is. But if you lie to me, we're done. Okay, what do you think of that setup? Because that's a setup that we've seen 
in other scenarios. And, and I've actually heard that kind of biz in real life amongst friends and stuff like that. What do you think about that? Like, is it legit? It's like, can bullshit. people, <laughs> okay. Cause I was like, can people really listen to the truth no. and keep to their agreement that they won't get upset? No, that's bullshit. It's, it's, it's a great goal to have. And maybe you can work towards that. But if, if you say, just tell me the truth, did you really kill the person? Did you really cheat on me? Did you really steal that thing? And then you're like, yeah, I did. You're not going to be like, oh, well, good. Now we can work through it together. You're going to be like, you're a fucking monster or whatever it is. Like, of course, it's just a ploy. It is a trap. It's supposed to be a get out of jail free card. It's a trap. (laughs) Admiral Akbar tried to teach us it. Have you ever used it on anybody? 23 years ago. No. You haven't used it on a kid? You haven't been like, if you tell me right now, it won't be that bad. But if I figure this out later, I'm going to like kill you. You've never done that? Uh, I have said to my son, tell me now because I will find out the truth later. So if you lie to me now, it will be worse for you when I find out the truth. So I, I've never said you won't be in trouble. I always say you will be in worse trouble if you lie to me now and I will find out later. So I never promise jail, get out of jail free. I just promise minimize trouble. Okay, okay. Which I think is more realistic, because that is realistic. <laughs> which if, I think is fair. <laughs> which, if, if you come clean about it, you should be in less trouble than if you lie about it and the person finds out and then has to come to you about it. Well, because it's always about that time and energy it takes to figure out the lie. That actually is what pisses me off. Extent, right. You, you've, you, it's mitigating circumstances, right? You're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in worse trouble if you, if you make me have to jump through hoops to find out you're a lying piece of shit. Yeah, there you go. That's what I was looking for. So here are my three truths and a lie. Truth one, did you inherit the family, a mafia family from grandpa? Yes. Truth two, some aspects of the business are illegal. Truth three, yes, people have been hurt. I have hurt people in my line of business. He started to he started to sway on that one, but she gave him the dad, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." People have gotten hurt because of it. Yeah, because he says something like, "Like, like only if I, only if they have to last only resort. Only if they were bad people, or whatever." His last like, resort. Right, right, right. So three truths. Here is the lie. It. I looked into this via. It was in fact a gas leak. Now, one hour left. Does this ever come true that she finds out that he lied to her? Here, my guess, probably not. He's playing Russian roulette here. He can't admit this last thing that is the most damaging of all the things because it's such it's the thing that's very fresh. Right. There's a trial going on that in part revolves around the fact that this guy's this little kid's family was killed by the Baxters. That is a part of it's a very fresh thing, whereas the other three truths were more either in the past or more amorphous. The gas leak is very much in Fia's current mindset because of a conversation with Olivia and and Eugene's trial. What's your guess? Does this does this lie come out in the last hour to come back and haunt him or does he get away with it for purposes of the show? I'm not saying that she doesn't find out eventually. I'm saying for purposes of the show finishing in an hour. Do, do you think so he gets caught hard. on this? That's so hard. That's so hard. Because, I mean, even when he was saying it, I was trying to think like, well, could it be true? Like, could, like, could, <laughs> could, especially when he said the thing, don't you laugh at me, especially when he said the thing about um, how, you know, they have all these different 
people that do things and sometimes people take it upon themselves to act on, you know, something that they think would be good for, for the organization, even though like Jimmy didn't make that call or whatever, you know, I, I, I was trying to really puzzle it out as to like, could there have been less responsibility than we were giving Jimmy from the beginning. I think it was there is Gina. Listen, it was it Gina. Was Gina. It, yeah. It was Gina's she idea to put do it. that out. We yeah. go hard one time and we end it. That was it was Gina's plan to kill them all. So does he have culpability? He has less culpability, but he says even in this conversation with Gina, uh even this conversation with Fia, he says ultimately I'm responsible for everything that happens. And so that's where I'm, but so at that point though, so then did he tell enough of the truth? For there to not be really like a, now there's this big, you know, coming out of the of no, Kofi's house. No, like, that be- wasn't enough for him to say, ultimately, I'm responsible no matter what. No, 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 no. No, because... <laughs> you he, don't give that anything? No, he should have said, it was your mother's idea. Oh. <laughs> it was your mother's <laughs> idea, but ultimately, I'm responsible. That is, that is lessening Mike, the culpability. See, hold up. That's sacrifice versus loyalty. He was, he is taking the responsibility on that versus selling her out. He's sacrificing what could be the relationship with Fia in order to be like in the family with his wife still. Like there's still that like, I, yeah, yeah, right? maybe, but he's actually not as a, as a, in this moment, he's actually not sacrificing anything because he hasn't been caught yet. Well, he gave the generic, he's responsible for everything. Yeah, he gave I guess. the generic. Well, maybe. I, hey, I like that. I'm looking, I'm looking for Jimmy character growth. I like Jimmy. I, I want Jimmy to have some redeeming character growth here. So I, I'm all, I'm all about co-signing that. The entire conversation about loyalty versus sacrifice. I mean, I think I, I would want to put that on the, on the board to talk about as our wrap up for the entire series, because I think that's something that's so complicated. I don't know that they are so separate. I, I think I think both are related. I think both are needed for family, for for the true test of family. I think loyalty is important as a sacrifice. But see, when I think about it, I'm think I'm thinking of like the mom or dad who goes without dinner in order to like have food for the kids to eat. Or I'm thinking, you know, they don't fix their car or something in order to pay for music lessons, or they don't do whatever. Like those are sacrifices that they make, or maybe they forego some medical treatment they need in order to do something else for their own child. Those are the types of things. And it's hard to put that in the same category as loyalty. Cause I put loyalty like in this other place because that's not loyalty to me. Those, no, no, those, those are things. And they couldn't moments. be. And, they, and, and, and it's not interchangeable. Like, I don't call, I can't call that. I, it could either be called a sacrifice or loyalty. Like, no, those are sacrifices. The show is great, though, because it always gives us a parallel narrative. Let's look it over at look Desire. Look at you saying my Caroline narrative yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're all like, this is a narrative parallel. I love it. Let's look at Desire. That's very much little Mo using loyalty over sacrifice. He chooses loyalty is what keeps him. The loyalty of the blood is that that's my auntie over there. You know, you think I'm going to go again. I don't think you understand what the word traitor means. He's choosing loyalty instead of sacrifice. So what do we think though? I think it's both. I, I think Michael's being, I think Michael from his point of view for what he's gone through and the guilt he carries about being responsible for Adam's death to him sacrifice seems loyal seems larger than loyalty i think the truth is 
both are important. I think I think the truest test of family is that you are loyal and also act in sacrifice. What does loyal mean to you? Because I like I just define sacrifice with like several different examples. What does loyalty mean? Not 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 in a crime family where like, you know, you're not and not in a gang, but in a regular average family. What does loyalty mean? Uh, blindly choosing one party even if they don't deserve it. It's 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 Fia saying to Olivia, I won't spy on my family no matter what they've done. That's loyalty. Okay. That's that's ignoring the fact pattern and making a choice based out of some other bond. That bond is loyalty. Don't use Fia though. Don't don't use Fia. I need I need like a regular family. Because that's that's too hard. You, you just you, the example you give me is a crime family talking to a U.S. attorney. That's 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 too. That's not an average family. What's an average family's loyalty? Uh, yeah, mm. it's harder, right? It's harder. It's harder to point out what that looks like exactly. I think. Fa- I think we often is it disagree- fidelity. I think we often disagree with choices members in our family make. But we don't turn against them because of that. That's loyalty. Okay. We like standing behind them and their choices. Okay. Okay. I mean, I think that, I think that's, that's it. Yeah. But for me, family is much more of a, much more of a family you choose versus a blood thing. I I define, I I personally define family differently than many other people do. I don't, I don't think family is a matter of blood. I think family is a matter of, of lo- love and loyalty. I-, I think you I think you choose your family, your your true family, the family that matters at the end of the day after you've actually lived life for a while, that family that you've chosen over your biological family. Okay. Um, okay. But that I think that is I think the bond of that is driven by loyalty. Uh, because you then in that case you don't have blood you don't have genetics you don't have biology the the connective tissue there is loyalty and yes sacrifice also comes into it because we often are put in positions of having to sacrifice for family however you define family but loyalty is 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 the bond that binds you to your family uh, even more so when it's not a biological family that you're talking about Hmm. Okay, I want to leave it on the board because I want to see if if they I want to see if they they delve into this a little bit more if they give it a, any more information about that kind of concept because there's something there's something there throughout this entire series that um that I think would be really interesting to talk about but it's going to take a little bit more mulling on my part to be like okay 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 so is how, there like, something there about loyalty and sacrifice? or loyalty that Jimmy didn't turn away from Fia even after learning she was in this relationship with Adam, the man who killed his son and, and embrace, in fact, embraced Fia and embraced Adam and embraces their baby. I think it would be, I think it would be defensible if him and Gina shunned them for that, but they didn't. The, isn't that isn't that them exhibiting loyalty? And this is not crime family, really. This is like this parents is, just uh, accepting their right. kids' choices. Right. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't they know if I can. They, they I don't know if that's loyalty. Her. I don't know if it's love. I don't know. I, that's that's where that's uh, love where and I'm loyalty are for, very blurred, aren't they? I mean, yeah, but that's why I was asking for a definition because I could very easily give you very specific, very tangible examples of sacrifice that is easily defined. Loyalty. 
rougher to define, really rougher to define. Well, and I think loyalty and love are often wrapped together, but not always, though, because I don't know that Little Mo and Big Mo love each other. I think there is loyalty. I think he has mm-hmm. loyalty to her. I don't know that he loves her, but maybe he does. But maybe he I, does I, I don't know. Way. I don't know. Right. And maybe loyalty equals love in their scenario. That's how you show love is through it's your like loyalty. All Catholics are Christian, but not all Christians are Catholic. All love is a form of loyalty, but not all loyalty is a form of love. I don't know. Let's put on the board. What do you guys think? Let us know. If you're still listening to this three hours in, I also have major props <laughs> to you. Yeah. I, you know what, though? I don't care because we only have one hour left to talk yeah, about this we're, show. We're and just, so we're, we're, I don't we're care. We're digging into it, y'all. We've got to figure this out a little bit because I, I want to give the writers all of their due in terms of like what messages were they trying to get us to have. We came into this as two parents thinking, what? how far would we go for our sons? What would we do for our kids? What would we do? that's how we came in and we were willing to leave it at that question but they've presented a bunch of other questions to us now would you lie in a court of law for a kid who you knew didn't deserve to have to go to prison and you know would you what what is loyalty what is sacrifice what is more important like there's a lot more questions here that i want to give it its due and really think about what i what would i do and what do i consider loyalty and i loyalty and sacrifice do go so hand in hand for me i'm 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 all over the place so good something to put on the board let's get into the one of the last examples of consequences of actions in this episode fia using information gleaned from her conversation with olivia tells jimmy that the u.s attorney spoke to her that the government is watching jimmy that they are watching all of his moves very carefully and she she pointedly tells him whatever you're doing with the calabries you should stop and the next scene we have is olivia who's just just dropped off Michael at Senator Grandma's house getting a call from Charlie. Charlie semi-frantically telling her that Jimmy Baxter just called him, has canceled the entire Baxter district, has pulled out, says he couldn't get funding to make it happen, and is completely withdrawn. Olivia's consequences of action. We were praising her for the bold decision to go around Michael and going at Fia, but unexpectedly, the consequence of that action is that now Fia has told her father about that conversation, which has prompted him to remove himself from the thing that Olivia was basing her entire case to take down the entire eastern seaboard of mafia <laughs> based on this this Baxter District project. What a twist, right? What a twist. So do we think that Olivia really was that a horrible move on her part to try to manipulate Michael through Fia? Because, you know, did she just assume that a dad and a daughter would the fight would be bad enough that somehow Fia would keep it secret from her dad? I think she very much. And I don't know that that was a bad assumption in. in I mean, every every choice we make always has pros and cons to it. And given that Michael had stonewalled her so severely, I still think it was the right call for her to do, given the idea that Fia is so unlike her parents and so unlike her family. What were the chances that within a couple of days or weeks that she would go telling Jimmy about her conversation with the U.S. attorney? I don't know. That I still think it was the right call, but it's certainly a consequence of actually come home to roost for her, though. One thing about this is that comes out of this is... Olivia says, oh, looky, looky to Michael that Charlie is calling. 
I was not under the impression that Michael knew that Charlie and Olivia were working together, but Michael doesn't have any kind of big reaction there other than just taking in the news that Olivia tells him about Jimmy pulling out of the Baxter district. Did Michael know Charlie called Olivia and made a deal around him or behind his back? I don't think so. He didn't uh, he didn't react like that was brand new information though, did he? No. But but he doesn't but he's not going to have a big reaction to Olivia. Like even if he's going to think like you know, even if it was shocking news, I don't think he's going to be like what the hell? I mean, whatever it was going to be, he was going to win the house and seethe about it, you know. Charlie fuck me again. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't I was not under the impression that 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 was known information that Charlie and Olivia were working together. Let's get to the final the final aspect of this episode before we let you guys go. Well, before we talk about questions going into the finale and then we'll let you guys go from uh, this very long school lesson. Let's listen to Fredo. I mean, Carlo talk to Michael about uh, the Baxter's plan vis-a-vis the Calabres. The Calabres. No. There's not a lot of mystery in their business model. Whatever they do won't be done in New Orleans. My dad made sure of that. So the Baxters are just middlemen? If I drop a bag off at your house and leave it there for a day, and you never look inside, and then someone comes and just takes it, are you really committing a crime? Let me off at the corner. By the way, Carlo, the answer to your question is yes. Smuggling is a crime. And ignorance is not a defense. Carlo's so smug when he thinks that he's being smart. <laughs> he really has the most punchable face on television, yeah, which is which does. is a credit it's to Jimmy bad. Stanton. It, it, that's not a knock at <laughs> Jimmy Stanton. That is how well Jimmy plays Carlo. And by the way, I still can only see Mark Wahlberg when I see Jimmy Stanton. Jimmy, he still looks just like a very young Mark Wahlberg to me. If they rebooted the movie Fear... Jimmy Stanton should play the Mark Wahlberg role. He looks nice. just like him. He's just got such a smug, punchable face. But I, I love, I love that Michael is like, yes, Carlo, and ignorance is no defense. I also like that Michael says middleman the way that I would. <laughs> It was important that they told the audience that that's a crime because I think there, I think when he first laid it out, a lot of audience members would have been like, huh, well, I don't think that is a crime. I mean, you didn't look in the bag. You didn't do anything. Someone else took it. What, what did you do wrong? You know, like, so I'm glad that he spelled it out and was like, no, what they're doing, no matter how much they're claiming to be kind of hands off is a crime. So good on them for like actually spelling it out. We cut from there to Olivia dropping Michael off, Michael telling Olivia, whatever you get, follow Carlo, whatever you're going to do, do it. Whatever he's going to start following him now, because whatever he's going to do, he's going to do soon. Olivia shouldn't need to be told that Fredo is the one to follow in the family. He's the bumbling idiot of the family. Olivia shouldn't need Michael to tell her to follow Carlo. She shouldn't. If she, if this person who the one thing we have rewarded her for and complimented for her this entire time is that she knows the fucking players in the game at the very least. She has to know that Carlo is the weak link. You are the weakest link. 
She has to know that about Carlo. How is she not? She spends all of her time in the goddamn bushes. How is she not following Carlo everywhere? She should She should have Angela on the payroll, for God's sakes. How is she not following Carlo everywhere? I don't know. This is the mystery of Olivia. It is the mystery of Olivia. You're 100% right. What does she know? What doesn't she know? And like I, some of the stuff seems very obvious that that Carlo, you know, the one in prison for curb stomping a guy and, you know, also the guy who was, uh, you know, accused and did kill Kofi. Like, why wouldn't he be the one with the biggest biggest target on his back? I don't know. Olivia, make you more always sense. follow Tell the Fredo. Guys, if you ever find your your in a position <laughs> to have to follow a member of a crime family because you want to bring them all down follow the fredo figure out which one that is and follow that one he'll be the arrogant punchable face one who's dumb as bricks when michael says <laughs> when michael says if you're in charge of crimes i'm out i almost peed myself from laughing so hard <laughs> that was very when funny you, if you're no well here's the thing if you're in charge of crimes i'm out like like that's a category like like you're in charge of criminal crimes. activities crimes and criminal yes. activities you're that's out funny. i almost peed myself mike michael to, michael just toying with carlo like he's like playing with his food always fun time so. it is Guys, that takes us to the end of this episode. Caroline, we have one hour left before the presumptive series finale of the show. I have a couple of questions. I'm curious what your questions are that that we're going into the finale about. Uh, My first one. Does Jimmy backing out of the Baxter district because of the Calabri's involvement make Michael more likely to want to work with him? Here's my reasoning for this question. What we didn't really focus on in this very long discussion is Michael is doing everything with Jimmy today. He's having his very special day out with Jimmy because (laughs) he's acting on Olivia's orders to get inside, get tight with Jimmy and get information that can help bring Jimmy down. He's not doing it because he actually wants to be spending the day with Jimmy. Now, that being said, in their conversations, I do think Michael is getting something out of his conversations with Jimmy. I think Jimmy is one of the few people that he can talk to openly and strip down and without any kind of smoke and mirrors. He can actually be pretty truthful with Jimmy, and that's not something he can do with most people in his life. He can do with almost nobody. I don't. I, don't, I can't even think of who else he can talk to and tell everything. So is the idea that this by removing himself because it, because of the Calabri's involvement. Does that make the idea that Jimmy, in fact, does want to be more legitimate? Do you think that that actually may encourage Michael to want, given the family connection on top of it and everything Jimmy said to him in this episode, does that play in Michael's head? Does that make him want to actually maybe want to work with Jimmy? Let's find out. I think it does. <laughs> well, what? don't answer it. These are the questions. You can't answer your questions. This section's called questions for the finale, not questions and answers. Well, it's questions Let's and you have to give a guess. It out. All right. I don't want to give a guess. I, I want to give the questions. That, I think that's an excellent question. My big one is, is Michael going to testify at Eugene's trial? And if he does, is he going to lie? And, and how is that going to actually go down? I really want to know that one. Another one, will Jimmy back, will Jimmy's backing out of the Baxter district because of the Calabria involvement be the thing that costs him his life and or his head of the family status with Carmine and Gina? Will this be the straw that breaks that camel's back? What about desire? Let's get back to that one. Do we think that there's any chance that Big Mo and Janelle can actually get back together or reconcile? And will that lead Big Mo to maybe just focus all attention on 
legal business at the at the club and perhaps Lil Mo goes ahead and takes over Desire the Gang and does she walk away from it? Does she walk away from it like very willingly? Very important question. We we already talked a lot about whether or not Lee will blow up everything uh, with the one piece of Michael information she has that she has not played in court yet. But here's the big question. Will the finale allow for the 11th hour reemergence of Franny to tell Fia the truth about Adam? Because it seems like no one else is going to at this point. So does Franny, the sexual predator teacher, return to say, oh, you've got a baby with Adam. Hmm. Let me tell you something about Adam you don't know. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. That would be fairly amazing. If if it's a Franny finale, we'll all freak out. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. One more time, please head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. If you leave us something nice, we're going to read it on air. We want to because we want to invite you to our groundbreaking ceremony when we build the pod club. Clubhouse District, a totally legitimate <laughs> enterprise not funded by collaborate money. Definitely no trafficking of anyone. <laughs> All manner of evil will not pass through the Pod Clubhouse District. <laughs> Only good things, good podcasts will pass through. How about I that? I no thief! <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.